Keel O, and welcome to another episode of Fuds on Feet. Uh, excuse me, sorry, I've been doing that all week out of nowhere, and I've no idea why. As I was saying, welcome to Feet on Film. All the Fuds are here for this episode, in which we'll be talking about the films of one Mr. Quentin Tarantino. I'm Drew, so that makes that man over there, Scott. That's me. And that man over there, Craig. Say goodbye to your Nazi balls. Mr. Tarantino, I've decided to adopt the style of the New York Times today for some reason, though to be honest, I'll probably have forgotten by the end of the episode. <laughs> oh, stop it! <laughs> it's one of those few directors whose distinctive work has led to the coining of an adjective, Tarantino-esque, following the likes of Hitchcockian. That his work produced such a result after so few films is remarkable. He's only directed nine feet year films in nearly 30 years. <laughs> I'm not here for this, Drew. <laughs> Though there's, there's some creative accounting going on with that number, and I'd argue that the fiddled with film should only have been one film. But, well, more on that later. But his work made an immediate impact with only his second film, Pulp Fiction, winning the Palme d'Or can. Perhaps that went to his head and he believed his own hype or, to be slightly less kind, spent too much time smelling his own farts, <laughs> as only his fourth film begins with the credit, the fourth film from Quentin Tarantino, which is quite the stunning display of hubris. However, his films are much loved, much talked about, and he's one of the few contemporary, popular filmmakers that could make a reasonable case for being an example of auteur theory, or podophilia. <laughs> His films are often distinguished by copious amounts of graphic violence, swearing and racial slurs, complex and funny dialogue, often on the subject of everyday topics, music choice, and for paying homage to various different genres, while remaining distinctively Tarantino-esque. There's also the Spike Lee-like need to appear on screen, and generally to underwhelming effect. (laughs) And his films also contain a lot of soul, though that last chapter works a lot better if you could see how I spelt it. Yeah, give yourself a big pat on the back, Drew. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Given that there was one word um, above all other that appeared in the notes of almost every film um, that I watched for this, then I had to at least address it. Uh, And it it won't come up later unless somebody else mentions it, so I'm just getting out of the way in the introduction. Good. Uh, but before we begin, any opening th- uh, thoughts, gentlemen? I always thought Tarantino-esque would be better if it was Tarantinish. There's a nicer ring to it, I think. <laughs> uh, but- <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a thought, Scott, certainly. <laughs> it qualifies. <laughs> no, I, th- uh, I, would, I would just say that I suppose for our generation in particular, Tarantino is kind of we kind of take ownership of him as our our signature sort of filmmaker of the period. He's the only filmmaker I think who you can probably or who can probably claim to having reshaped and influenced cinema to the extent that he has. Um which is evident from uh really from the aftermath of his first feature onwards, which is quite remarkable the way that particularly dialogue in films uh, was influenced by his work um, yeah. and the sort of the proliferation once again of licensed rather than bespoke uh, soundtracks 
Um, but the, the 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 it's the dialogue for me that 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 uh, sticks in the mind the most because it really did sort of shape conversations amongst characters in films to an extent that we're still seeing the effects of that now. I think I think you can probably say that he's he's changed the fabric of that and quite and I don't think there's another contemporary filmmaker who has had that kind of impact on the the fabric of the medium itself. Is that fair enough? I would say so, and I think yeah, it's it's very much dialogue. That if there's anything that matches the oh. adjective of Tarantino-esque, more than anything, it's dialogue. Yeah, for better or worse, um, and I'm sure we will we will cite examples of both of those as we as we go through this tonight. But I would imagine so. Yeah, I thought a very remarkable and very singular filmmaker, um, and I think also one of the few filmmakers working today who you could. You know, if if somehow you were presented one of his films in a vacuum, you would know straight away who had made that film. Uh, his his uh, his mark is most definitely all over these films. It's incredibly yeah. distinct, and for all that he's yeah. been, for all that he's been aped by other filmmakers, I don't think anyone's been successful in that yet. A, a Tarantino film is something very much in and of itself, and easily identifiable as that. Yeah, I think. Um Scott and I at least have talked about it before. I, I don't recall, Craig, I'm afraid, if mm-hmm. you were part of the conversation, but we've like, not hugely on board with the idea of auto theory because like, there are too many other people going to making a film. But mm. th- that's why I said, like, if anybody makes a claim for like that being true, at least in the modern day, and uh, there, there may be like smaller indie filmmakers I'm not as familiar with that are put a very strong stamp in a film, but when it comes to populist filmmakers... Mm-hmm. Nobody uh, makes an argument for that for the audio theory more than Tarantino because yeah I think that's a fair yes it's a so yeah yes it's a collaboration but it's like yeah it's a Tarantino film is in every way a Tarantino film yeah and he does he does get involved in so many aspects of it as well he's he's all over his films in a way that certain other directors may not be so yeah certainly fits in with yeah you could you can imagine him micromanaging a lot of the process and I think you can look at other directors' films and perhaps, uh, for example, you might be able to look at a film and say, oh, I can, I'm can. i pretty certain that film was shot by Roger Deakins, for example. Uh, yes. But Tarantino has worked with various cinematographers, various editors now at this point, and I think the films remain distinctively his rather than bearing the hallmark of anyone else. And I would think that if you put Deacons behind the, the or in charge of the, <laughs> the cameras on a Tarantino set, you would still come out of that saying that's a Tarantino movie rather than, oh, it looked like a Deacons movie. Yeah. So uh, I think, yeah, in that, in that sense, I think it's a pretty fair, pretty fair assessment to make, Drew. We begin with a film that takes its name from an apparent mishearing of Louis Malle's Au Revoir Les Enfants, which, to be honest, to me, suggests either a really garbled pronunciation, <laughs> um, <laughs> that Tarantino has an incredibly tin ear, or maybe it's a creation myth. But, Scott, let's begin with that film, which is somehow transmuted Au Revoir Les Enfants to Reservoir Dogs. Yes. Yes, Reservoir Dogs covers in Tarantino's favoured non-linear fashion the planning and disastrous results of a diamond heist after it becomes apparent that there's a rat in the house. Said rat is Tim Roth's Mr Orange, undercover cop who wormed his way into the good graces of the criminal organisation of Lawrence Tierney's uh, Joe Cabot and his son Chris Penn's Nice Guy Eddie and is now bleeding out on the floor of a dingy warehouse while Harvey Keitel's Mr White, Steve Buscemi's Mr Pink and Michael Madsen's psychotic Mr Blonde all point fingers and guns at each other. Oh, and don't worry about that cop sitting over in the corner he won't be hearing anything. 
Tarantino's first film pretty much started as he meant to go on, jumping around in time and combining relatively obscure music choices with discordant actions, in this instance giving a generation an entirely new perspective on Steeler's Wheel. That ear-cutting scene in particular led to early criticisms of Tarantino's work being violent, gratuitously even, and perhaps in his later work that might even be fair to say, but I've always found Reservoir Dogs tame by the standards of any postcode time. Like most of his films, Reservoir Dogs is less about the narrative, hence my rather brief summation, uh, but more about hanging out with the characters, and of course, the main Tarantino hallmark of the period, the dialogue, which, like Kevin Smith's contemporaneous work, is not particularly realistic, but is undeniably cool and fun. And at the risk of spoiling my metacriticism of every Tarantino film, I rather get <laughs> the impression if you were to ask Tarantino why he wrote, shot, directed, etc. any part of any film he's made, the answer would be, because I thought it would be cool and or funny. And <laughs> as more often than not, I'm on his wavelength, that means there's a good number of films we were talking about here that I found cool and or funny. Reservoir Dogs, certainly, <laughs> uh, most certainly amongst them, but I'm not sure I've got a great deal more to say about them. All surface and no feeling, maybe... But with a surface this polished and with this many great turns and this much entertainment, it's very hard to be hard on it. A very accomplished and uh, highly enjoyable debut, uh, even all these years later. Yeah, very good stuff. Yeah, I don't know if there's much you can add to the conversation about this this film at this point. But my, I mean, my observation of Reservoir Dogs, if I have to sum it up, would be that this is probably the single most significant calling card uh, in terms of a director's debut in the last 30 years of cinema, if not the 30 years that also preceded it um, I think culturally it's hard to emphasise what a kind of atom bomb this was going off because it kind of, it was the first film in a long time I think to sort of cross boundaries of pop culture and it, it became a sort of a lifestyle statement for some people <laughs> um, I, it was just across all forms of media it seemed to have this seismic impact on things and for such a relatively small film um with you know like a micro budget and you know i mean i goodness knows i i don't know I, I haven't actually read that much about the production of the film for all that this is i suspect a really sort of formative cinematic experience for the three of us given the age we were at when this arrived yeah. on the scene I'm, I'm still not entirely sure what the story is behind how uh, Tarantino managed to get the likes of Kaitel on board, but you know, in in essence, this is like micro budget filmmaking, and for something like that to have an impact, the only other film I can think of that culturally would even have come close, and it didn't cross the boundaries that this film did. It was just maybe as much of a talking point as it was for some point was Blair Witch Project. But, you know, no one was putting up Blair Witch Project's um, posters on their wall. Blair Witch Project didn't reinvent and relaunch the movie soundtrack as a listening experience at home. Blair Witch Pro Project wasn't being quoted by kids in school grounds up and down the land. Um, it's just... Yeah, just kind of unfathomable what an impact such a sort of small piece of filmmaking actually uh, actually had. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking when I wrote my notes up, um, I was thinking I've seen Reservoir Dogs dozens of times, at least well, at least half a dozen. Then I thought back and was like, no, I've seen this now three times, but I remember it all <laughs> incredibly clearly. I could have recited essentially most of the script from memory. So it's one of these films that just had a. a one of these bolts from the blue on a, like a young, impressionable uh, lad that uh, really was incredibly memorable and uh, impactful. And yeah, it certainly stuck with me for an awfully long time. There are synapses in our brains which have developed around this film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To pick up from what you were saying, Craig, though, and to go back to my comment about creation myth, I think you don't want to dwell too much on the whole micro-budget thing because mm. Reservoir Dogs 
doesn't have a micro or didn't have a micro budget. And like that's the idea I had in my head that it was like meant to be shot on a very small amount of money. I was thinking very much about this when I watched this last week and mm. I'm thinking there was no way it was made in that much money. Look at the crew. Even if nothing else, mm. like look at the crew. Um, and yeah, okay, it wasn't made on a lot of money, but it wasn't made on a micro budget. Uh, the actual creation reason- myth is uh, Quentin Tarantino's really lucky. Seems to be how it goes. He was incredibly yeah. happy. Yeah, by all accounts. So it's goes to the producer, Lawrence Bender, gives the script to Harvey Keitel, and Keitel himself liked it and decided to sign up as a co-producer. And then that made it, because like Harvey Keitel on board, you get an awful lot. You can have money now. Get money. And they got a million and a half dollars. Okay. That's an awful lot more than they kind of, like, the idea, the number I had in my head was like around $60,000 or something. Yeah, kind of that's the ballpark I figure I was thinking. And it's like, it's like, that's why I was like so sceptical watching this. Like, there's no way. Not, not just because it, it looks so good. Um, you can be creative there. But it's like I kept looking at the crew, the huge number of people in the crew for a, a film that only has like eight characters um, yeah. in a couple of locations. Like, uh, no, it's um, it's considerably more than that. So it, I think it's creation myth. I, I mm. think isn't that still essentially from a studio perspective, chump change though, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, they, they did well, and they've got. I mean, actors like Steve Buscemi, I, I don't think were particularly well known then, certainly are now. But I mean, he's got a, assembled a great cast, made a really good job of it. But I think I don't know enough about Tarantino to suggest that he lied, but perhaps he didn't do anything to dissuade people when they got the wrong idea. Because it, mm-hmm. it builds his his mythos, doesn't it? Well, more power to him. But yeah, I don't have an awful lot to to add to either of you have said. I've seen that I probably have seen this dozens of times, Scott, um, but I've enjoyed it every time. I just find the, the the soundtrack's brilliant and the dialogue is so entertaining. I really like the the diegetic use of sound that's like starts on a car radio or something, but then becomes like just a normal non diegetic soundtrack. And you know, the way that's mixed is really really well done. Mm-hmm. So technically, that's really well done. Yeah, the big issues I have with it are just the same issues I have with a lot of Tarantino stuff. Is like. Why are these characters all so racist? Like, do they have to, or, or misogynist, or in this case, both? Like, do they have to be like that all the time? All your characters like this, and, and I don't think that Quentin Tarantino is racist, but he seems to be awfully fond of making his characters like that. And I think he's yes, I don't think he's racist without knowing the man personally. But I kind of think he's a bit tone deaf. Um, and when you have all your characters like in the car on their way to like check out the joint and they're talking about like what black women would do and what white women would do and all that stuff like is it really necessary he writes such entertaining dialogue does it have to be dialogue about that in almost every film he makes yeah of course he leans into that later on in his career but it, it does kind of pervade all the earlier stuff as well to no real benefit mm. to anyone yeah it's a bit yeah, of a strange yeah. choice yeah you kind of get the feeling that look, you could write dialogue about this if it was you know of this quality if they were having a conversation about their favourite pancake house you know what I mean yeah, why Why did you need to make it something that's so so edgy we'll come on to it shortly but like on the span I said in my introduction that like so much of his dialogue is about just everyday stuff right? mm. look at the start of Pulp Fiction in Pulp Fiction um, <laughs> after the dinner scene they're talking about hamburgers yeah. right <laughs> It's fascinating. I could listen to that all day. I mean, it doesn't have to be offensive as well. Yeah. Um, so, like some of his settings, it makes sense, but it's just it seems he just goes so heavy on it. Sometimes it just I don't know, why is that there? Why mm. was did they deem that necessary? 
Yeah, it doesn't need um, to be an edge lord all the time. Yeah, yeah, it just it seems a bit much. It's like, well, it doesn't seem to have it doesn't seem to have hurt his career. So I wonder if perhaps being being an edge lord was was part of part of that. You know, uh, ego building exercise and um, part of the part of the self promotion. Um, I mean, because it certainly it certainly generated enough conversation around his work, didn't it? And you know, there's no such thing as bad, bad publicity. So um, I don't know, but yeah, no, I think it is something that going back now. I don't think necessarily twenty odd years ago it was something that was troubling troubling me to listen to. I think I was just probably too young, too naive, and too overwhelmed to uh, to consider that now. But given given yeah, the sort yeah. of social paradigm shifts that that we're going through now, it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah, I'm sure we probably all thought it was cool, and it, it's not that I have a problem with any like one example of dialogue, particularly with watching no. all of his films within one week. I'm like, yeah, oh, it's, it's, more the, really, it's more the pattern really that is established that's concerning. Yeah. yeah. Well, we move on though to, I guess, the film that made Quentin Tarantino really. I mean, Reservoir Dogs was his calling card, but his next film is what kind of really cemented him, isn't it? Mm. It's a strange thing that one of the characteristics of Quentin Tarantino's style that so many people list is non-linear storytelling, despite only one-third of his films having such a structure. Some identify the hateful eight thusly, though those people are wrong and would do well to seek out a definition of flashback and how this differs immensely. But I digress. And I suspect much of that has to do with Pulp Fiction, whose three intersecting main storylines are told out of chronological order. Said three storylines are those of hitmen Jules Winfield, Samuel L. Jackson, and Vincent Vega, John Travolta, and ageing boxer Butch Coolidge, Bruce Willis, back when he cared about acting, which was nice, and which intersect in location and character, with the film beginning with the end of Jules' story and near the end of Butch and Vincent's. The disrupted narrative makes it rather difficult to summarise, but the most important points are that a near-death experience causes Jules to consider ending his criminal career, while a decision by Butch not to deliberately lose a boxing match puts him in the sights of Vincent, as directed by Vincent and Jules's boss, the gangster Marcellus Wallace, played by Ving Rhames. These are threads that loosely link a series of vignettes that include a dance contest, an LA set deliverance homage, an armed robbery, a drug overdose, and rather grisly car cleaning, all set to a, unsurprisingly, great soundtrack and dialogue about, amongst other things, the regional naming of hamburgers. It probably shouldn't work, yet it does, and it's full of memorable moments, characters and lines. Who can forget the efficiency of Harvey Keitel's Wolf, or sadly his reprisal of that role in direct line insurance adverts, <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson's Ezekiel 2517 monologue, or Bruce Willis's evocation that Zed's dead, baby, Zed's dead. It made Tarantino. It resurrected John Travolta's career, at least for a while, being known before then for dancing and talking babies and after for Cthulhu, <laughs> Xanadu, <laughs> Xantham gum. Something like that. You know what I'm talking about. And cemented Sam Jackson as well. Sam Jackson. However, watching all of Mr. Tarantino's films in such close proximity has served to fully crystallise the realisation that there really is nothing below the surface of his his films. And as Scott mentioned earlier, he used a phrase I almost used, which is all surface, no feeling. This film's title card defines for us the noun pulp as 
One, a soft, moist, shapeless mass of matter. Two, a magazine or book containing lurid subject matter and being characteristically printed on rough, unfinished paper. The films are too slick and too polished for the rough or unfinished aspects to hold true. But as for the rest, every film that Quentin Tarantino has made is a pulp fiction. They say nothing. They critique nothing. Watching these films again, I strove to find meaning, looking for, perhaps, an acknowledgement of the artifice of the medium of cinema in the conspicuous black and white rear projection behind Vincent Vega's car as he drives through Los Angeles, or perhaps a commentary in Jimmy's, Tarantino's own character here, very free use of that particularly odious racial epithet, yet having a black wife. But it's simply not there. What you see is what you get with Tarantino. Mr. Tarantino is a pop singer who makes lightweight confections that entertain, but, well, I wouldn't say never satisfy, but sometimes you just want more. And they do entertain, but there's a real curiosity to me why he's quite so fetid in cineast circles and quite so highly regarded at, for example, Cannes. He's a storyteller and rightly lauded for his most characteristic skill, his dialogue, which while often little resembling anything any human might actually say, is usually great, and in the mouth of the right actor, absolutely sings. For example, here, really inimitable Samuel L. Jackson, or with Christoph Waltz in Django Unchained, which I'd argue is its pinnacle. That his films are more often than not entertaining, like personality, goes a long way. But Pulp Fiction, more so than Reservoir Dogs, appears now as a mission statement for Tarantino's Tarantino's oeuvre, Not a template, his works, while often bearing similarities, are nevertheless too dissimilar to be simply formulaic, but a philosophical and tonal outline that he hasn't strayed much from since. It's still awfully good, though. (laughs) Yeah, um, I would say everything that I said about Reservoir Dogs, about Pulp Fiction, it's basically Reservoir Dogs (laughs) plus plus. Um, It's Reservoir Dogs, but a bit more so. Um, Everything is just that bit cooler, that's that bit more... Perhaps a bit more entertaining. It's got. It's probably got less heart to it, just purely because you can't really get into any kind of conflict between the characters, the way that this is set up, and the way that it jumps around, and the way that it's clearly more focused on entertaining than creating anything deeper. But it still all works, and it's still a great deal of fun. Ultimately, again, that's what you come to Tarantino for. Certainly, by this point, uh, looking back at it, you come to Tarantino for a fun time and nothing more. And that's again what he delivers with uh, Pulp Fiction. I wouldn't have a lot to add to that. I think uh, I was surprised watching this again recently because for the first time in oh god, uh, like fifteen years probably, um, that uh, this has mellowed with age somewhat. I think. At the time, I recall this being so edgy and like so, um, it felt a lot more brutish and like a, some sort of mission statement. But coming back now after such a such a long period and reviewing it, I was I was surprised at how how more mellow it seemed actually, um, and I was never convinced at the time about the argument that was made about how this non-linear chronology was sort of rewriting the rule book of cinema. I don't I didn't buy it then and I don't still really don't buy it now in retrospect either. I'm not sure that that was as as groundbreaking as was being hailed, but it is just 
it is just a pure piece of entertainment and I think it's a great showcase for the fact that character and dialogue are enough if you're telling an interesting enough story and if you make your characters interesting enough and you are capable of crafting dialogue that while maybe not particularly maybe not always so natural and maybe maybe could be accused of being particularly self-aware is still certainly engaging and interesting. And if he is a pop filmmaker, then I think that the reason that he is so successful and, play, and revered in places like Cannes is because I think he, he makes... He makes pop cinema about as well as it can be made, um, and I think you're right. I don't. I don't think there is. As we'll go through here, I think we'll be hard pushed to find a film that really has much to say about anything uh, beyond its its characters and their interaction. Uh, I don't think there are any great life lessons to be learned from from Tarantino. There are no Instagram posts of hashtag so true uh, <laughs> to be made from any any of the pearls of wisdom he he has to give us, but. Sometimes it's enough for a film just to be enjoyable and there's just something about the way that he crafts these experiences which makes it, like you say, Scott, plus plus. Um, <laughs> so I wasn't I wasn't disappointed to return to Pulp Fiction. It doesn't feel as seismic now as it felt then, um, certainly. Uh, and again, much like Reservoir Dogs, in fact, possibly more so, Pulp Fiction was just like a, a cross-cultural phenomenon again it's really weird to think back now and and objectively view uh with that distance between us in the moment now what what a sort of sensation it was and how much people spoke about it and i mean even even now people will quote that film and everybody knows everybody knows what your what your reference is when when you do that but the one thing i do wonder about is i think when my kids get older is there enough in films like Pulp Fiction to sustain their interest? Are they going to be as curious about stuff like this? And is it going to feel as relevant and culturally appropriate to them as it, as it did to us at the time? I'm not sure about the longevity of some of these films in that mm. respect, but certainly in the moment, I think I enjoy, I enjoy Pulp Fiction as much now for the nostalgia that it evokes as I did as a piece of movie making back then, if that makes sense. So yeah. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised because it has been a good sort of 15 years and it wasn't this sort of, not train wreck, it was never going to be a train wreck, but nothing stuck out to me as being particularly irrelevant or having aged particularly badly about it. No, I, I didn't actually have a, a feeling of nostalgia watching this, which is good. It's not what I was looking for from watching these. I was like, see whether like, no, basically do I still enjoy them? Yeah. Um, although like... I think we're all agreed then. He's he's a pop artist. He's a, a pop cinema director. Oh yeah. Um, but has like you know he, he's the he's the pinnacle of that, I guess. But again, it's like that's just, it leaves me slightly dissatisfied because sometimes I just want a bit more from a film. Mm. Um, you know, you, you normally don't watch um, a director's entire output in a week. You know, um, if they <laughs> wonder that, it's like it's partly my fault for having kind of compressed that for this podcast, but. When you say, Craig, too, about whether it's going to be, like, relevant in the future for your kids or something, like, that's always a danger with anything pop, mm. um, I think, that, that, that they might not just hang around. Um, that said, I mean, this is, uh, what, 26 years after Pulp Fiction came out? Something like that. It's 1994, isn't it? So, yeah, 26 We have to talk that. about things we remember in our youth as being a quarter <laughs> century old now. Yes, it's frightening, isn't it? Um 
but it's still it's still very entertaining. The dialogue's still good. Cause the dialogue is timeless. Is a difficult word to use, but it doesn't feel like the the dialogue particularly sets it in any one era. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's kind of a definition of timeless. But you know, it's <laughs> um, it's not referring whereas, to TikTok on the main or anything like that. <laughs> no, I, and because the like so much of the settings called back to the fifties anyway, and like rev, uh, reference to his visual reference to like nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties films, and how Vincent and Joel's dress and stuff that it was already kind of slightly out of time anyhow. Mm. So then that might help make it lasting. Yeah. The, the other point I wanted to mention to what you said was. Give me a second, it'll come back to me. Um. That's all right, I'll fill, I'll fill for you. The, the one thing that I think has perhaps aged a bit about this and it's easier to see now in retrospect is actually how sort of just how hard the dialogue is trying, how self-conscious the dialogue is about trying really hard to be cool. And I don't think Pulp Fiction is necessarily has aged the worst in that respect. I think it might be perhaps the biggest offender, but I don't think it sticks out quite so much as it might do in a couple of other films coming up that we'll talk about. But I did, I did, uh, I didn't cringe, but there were a couple of moments watching this back where I thought, yeah, that kind of takes me out of the film a bit because you're really, you're perhaps trying a little bit too hard with the dialogue there. But I think that's something, one of the things that's certainly improved with this guy's work over, over time. Uh, and when we get into the back, the back nine on this podcast, then I think we will, uh, well, there are certainly examples I I could give that I think I appreciate his writing style more latterly than I than I do now going back and watching some of these earlier films. I think actually what I was about the dialogues, probably was you were talking about. I feel like it had mellowed a bit. Mm. So I wonder, like, would then feel quite as raw and impactful. Like, I don't know whether that's time and experience in a changing world, or whether it's simply because. Because, as we were discussing earlier, Tarantino himself and his style has had so much impact, mm. whether his own film, and it's what I suspect it is, is that his own films aren't quite as impactful as they are because like, they've had so, like, it's, it's had a quarter of a century now mm. for them to have so much impact and everything else that's come up, not everything, but a lot of other things that have come out since. Yeah. A couple of things I wanted to mention that are nothing to do with critique or anything like that, I just, um, I feel like I wanted to mention them. First of all, I have changed a lot because I'm watching Pulp Fiction now and the scene where just before Mia Wallace is about to have her heroin overdose and I'm spending most of my time looking at her reel-to-reel tape recording wondering if it's on one of the nice ones that was on Techmon or not. I'm a weird person. <laughs> Second thing, how quaint is it, is it that somebody can go into a restaurant in Los Angeles of all cities and think that a $5 shake's expensive? <laughs> oh, how quaint. Remember when you could buy stuff for not a lot of money? Wasn't that wonderful? <laughs> we are so old. Right, Craig, we're going to move on to... Jackie Brown. Mr. Yeah, Mr. Tarantino's take on black exploitation. Well, sort of, but not quite, but sort yeah, of. Yeah, there or thereabouts. If it was black exploitation written by, by a white middle-aged author, then... <laughs> yeah, if, uh, if Reservoir Dogs was the ultimate career calling card and Pulp Fiction the paradigm-shifting sophomore sensation, then 1997's Jackie Brown must surely rank among the most anticipated movies of all time. Tarantino's first adapted screenplay, working from Elmore Leonard's novel Rum Punch, it tells the story of an emotionally and financially down-at-heel air stewardess, the titular Jackie Brown, Pam Greer, as she finds herself caught between a low-level arms dealer and two ATF agents. 
the arms dealer, Ordell Roby, uses, uh, sorry, Samuel L. Jackson, I should point out, uses Jackie to smuggle cash and goods from Mexico and is none too impressed when she's intercepted with 30 grand and a bag of cocaine by Leonard regular Ray Nicolette, played here by Michael Keaton. And not for the last time. Enlisting the services of bail bondsman Max Cherry, Robert Forster, to get Brown out of Chokey, Robbie plans to kill Jackie before she testifies against him. However, Brown is nobody's fool, so after thwarting the attempt on her life and striking up a friendship with Cherry, she sets about devising a scheme to rob Ordell of half a million dollars in Mexican savings he's planning on bringing into the country. Leonard's novels are renowned for their plotting, character dynamics, confidence, capers, and, like Tarantino, smart-ass dialogue. So on paper, it looks like a good choice for Tarantino to dip into that well for his first adapted work. Viewers at the time, however, came out of cinemas broadly disappointed at the change in tone, sedate pace, and relative lack of shock factor they'd anticipated from what was now very much the Tarantino brand. There were, of course, those who championed the movie, but they were certainly in the minority. And indeed, the backlash was sufficient such that I, for one, never bothered to watch Jackie Brown. Until now, obviously. I am pleased to report that in the brief 23 years <laughs> since the movie debuted, it appears to have worn rather well, as I found it engaging at a character level in a way that Dogs and Pulp were not, and a pretty obvious indicator that QT was not a one-trick pony. Central to the discussion around the movie's release was the casting of Greer and Forster, which to my recollection felt like something of a stunt at the time, but in less cynical retrospect, more a function of the director's cachet, enabling him to cast the people he wanted to tell the story of Jackie Brown in the most authentic way. It really was a smart choice, because both the leads inhabit their roles in a way that feels immediately comfortable, their convincingly world-weary demeanour and easy chemistry a real treat from the off. Forster in particular is effortless in his seen-it-all-before portrayal of the bail bondsman with a surprisingly sentimental edge we hadn't really seen in a Tarantino movie before or, come to think of it, maybe since. (laughs) Make no mistake, though, this is Greer's movie and, while perhaps the least traditionally thespian of the main cast, with their support, she nonetheless commands the screen convincingly and with quiet, powerful dignity. It's been a long time since I read Rum Punch, and until I watched this movie, I hadn't realised it was actually an adaptation of that. But as I recall it, this is exactly how I'd imagined the character of Jackie to be. While the pace is certainly very sedate, I'd argue that Pulp Fiction in comparison perhaps only seems less so because it's punctuated frequently by myriad memorable scenes. Nothing about Jackie Brown shouts, look at me, in quite the same way, but rather than being to the movie's detriment, it helps maintain focus on the characters, who are, in the main, much more rounded and believable than perhaps we'd become accustomed to by this point in the director's oeuvre. Sure, there are still the peripheral players who seem to be there mainly to service Tarantino's fascination with the minutiae of pop culture, but here they are kept suitably in check and there are no 10-minute digressions into discussions about foot massages, painfully overwrought Bible recitals or the perceived value of milkshakes. (laughs) There we go. I hadn't read Drew's notes before. This is most assuredly Tarantino's interpretation of another artist's work, and he's had a good sense to trust the source material over and above all else. In doing so, he demonstrates his skill as a filmmaker as much as a commentator on culture, and his catalogue of work is the stronger for it. I'm glad I came to this movie when I did, as I think it's easier to see now in retrospect how the pace and commitment to character demonstrated here feeds into some of his later works that we'll be talking about. And in that context, I think I enjoyed it more than I might have done contemporaneously. 
simultaneously. A movie I shall definitely be coming back to again. Yeah, I did see Jackie Brown when it came out. Now, whether I went in with any preconceived notions about wanting it to be as... It's shocking, it's not the word I would ever use, but kind of effective and... Hmm. Courting controversy quite so much. Um, as something like Pulp Fiction of Reservoir Dogs. I don't know. I don't remember feeling that, but I can't say for certain that I did. But I certainly, I didn't enjoy it at the time. I found it a disappointment and I was very much of the opinion of, mm, eh, would be as effusive as I would have been about it. I've never read any Elmore Leonard, so I had no conception of whether it was a good adaptation or not. But my initial experience with that was enough to put me off having, um, put me off watching it again. Okay, this this is not one of the Tarantinos I prefer. I'm quite happy to not watch it. Then, obviously, watched it for this podcast. And like, wow, this is really, really good. I mm. like this a lot. And you're absolutely right. There aren't any of the the bits of memorable dialogue or real standout scenes that a pop fiction has. It's hard to replace it with an actual story. Yes, it's much more cohesive as a story. Uh, and it's really quite satisfying. I mean, there are minor niggles I have with it. Like, it, the film feels like it should end after Max Cherry leaves the shopping mall. And that would kind of be satisfying narratively. Although, actually, that it carries on a bit after that is okay. Because, you know... She would still have Ardell to deal with and yeah. the um, custom agent, like, you know, Batman and not Owen Wilson, um, who I, I considered that as who he was. Who does this guy remind me of? Like, he's like Owen Wilson, but wrong. Uh, um, can shake that for the rest of the film. Uh, but yeah, so it actually, like, the character story, that does have to be resolved. It just, it takes another 20 minutes to do it and it's not done particularly satisfyingly. Mm. Um so it kind of it loses focus at the end of the film a bit which is a pity otherwise yeah very very satisfying story Pam Greer is great I don't, I don't think I've ever actually seen Pam Greer in anything other than Jackie Brown I haven't known no. the name for a long time no. because of the black exploitation film she was in and she's mentioned in Reservoir Dogs yeah there's, there's actually there's a few times that happens it's kind of foreshadowing either of a director a genre or an actual actor in Quentin Dio's films who then turn out to be in his next or um, subsequent film. Hmm. Uh, uh, whether that's intentional, I don't know. It's just a function uh, yeah. of his fascination with uh, with genre cinema, and probably he's you know he's he holds these people in high regard, and it's just he's in a position now where he's like, I would like to work with that person. There's a good chance they will agree to work with me because of the cachet I have. Yeah, it's like, I wonder whether he's like instead of calling them up or calling their agent, it's like. No, I'm going to actually call you out in the middle of my film and mm. hope that you'll be in my next one. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the time I think there are people, and I think uh, Pam Greer's probably a good example, people where I think he probably feels like they've not been given their due. And he kind of has a platform now to, you know, afford them some sort of uh, elevation. And, and very few of these people have gone on to have sort of massively resurgent careers apart from like John Travolta. Uh, but I mean, it didn't do Pam Greer and Forster any harm. Uh, and I just get the impression that he's he's these are people that he's you know he's got great admiration for and he's incredibly fond for and it's probably just like a, it's probably just been a, a you know something of a, a a dream for him at some point to God I wish I could work with Pam Greer and make some sort of genre movie you know it does feel like that sometimes and yeah yeah I do agree too I had the same feeling watching this that it's like it does feel like a couple of times that he's tried to basically resurrect people's careers mm. oh he's listen he's in love with Pam Greer. 
There's no doubt about it, you know. And I don't blame him because she's indomitable in this movie. She's a, she is. She's just yeah. a. She's just an amazing actress and a, a yeah. great character. She just seems really. She's just a. She's a powerful screen presence, even if she's perhaps not the most accomplished, quotation marks, actor. Um, you know, on 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 the screen. Yeah, she's in the central role, though, and again, she's not known for like great thespian or anything, but she's she's captivating. She's a lot of presence and charisma, and she's great. Where this film lets me down a bit, it's it's my biggest beef with it, apart from that kind of unfocused ending, mm-hmm. is some of the um, supporting roles. Um, and I can't really like say anything good or bad about Robert De Niro. He's not really in it enough to to really make much of it. Yeah. Um, but Bridget Fonda is you know not good in pretty much anything she's been apart from maybe Lake Placid. So yeah, she's not great. She's again, she doesn't have a lot to do, but she's not particularly appealing. But I am reminded by this film that I hate 1990s Michael Keaton. Because <laughs> <laughs> basically, anything Michael Keaton's been in since 2010, I want to see twice as much of him. Mm. But 1990s Michael Keaton was rotten and I did not care for him at all. <laughs> I was going to say, ultimately, I guess I'm in the same boat as Craig. I was convinced I'd seen Jackie Brown. And especially when I started watching it, I realised, oh, despite owning this for 20 odd years, no, I haven't actually seen Jackie <laughs> Brown. Um, I've read some Elmore Leonard, perhaps I've read Drum Punch, and maybe that's where I was uh, uh, coming from. And certainly, as you, as you mm-hmm. see, it would, it would seem to be a good fit, Elmore Leonard and Tarantino from all the works I've seen. It's like that would be ideal. And it more or less turns out to be the case. I mean, I because this is the first time I've seen it, I don't know if we can give it the same kind of, uh, don't the same distance from it as I do with Reservoir Dogs and uh, Pulp Fiction. But I think of his early career, there will be certain moods that I'm in where Jackie Brown will be my favourite of these three. I can mm-hmm. I can see that happening going back to it because as a, I, I mentioned earlier, it's it's got an actual story there with actual plotted deep characters that you can kind of feel something for as opposed to just being cool and funny, which is great. But yeah, um, it's, it's got genuine thing. human emotion in it. <laughs> yes, yeah. um, emotion and a story. It's like you actually care about the characters as opposed to like just. You know, just going along for the ride, yeah. They like them, yeah. Yeah, yeah so um, it certainly does not have the uh, the kinetic impact of something like a Reservoir Dogs or a Pulp Fiction. I can, I can certainly understand why audiences may have felt they've been uh, rope doped on going to see Jackie Brown, but um, yeah, with the, with all these years uh, <laughs> hindsight, uh, it, it's a really solidly put together film. Uh, it shows there is a lot more to Quentin Tarantino's bow. Certainly at this point, um, whether he went on to actually fulfil that promise I'm not quite so sure we're going to get into his uh, wilderness years I think in a bit Um, but uh, there's Jackie Brown shows that Quentin Tarantino when he wants to be does not need to just be all about cool stuff he can have a bit of emotional depth and depth to him he he may perhaps have chosen not to really exercise that which is fair enough and it's his prerogative and he's been very successful for it Um, but yeah Jackie Brown when I'm in a certain mood may well be uh, my favourite Quentin Tarantino uh, movie when all said and done uh, when I'm in a certain frame of mind for it yeah good stuff so I guess then we've established that Tarantino could do a good story and interesting sympathetic characters so it's really good that he went to just completely abandon that for the fourth film by Quentin Tarantino then (laughs) Kill Bill 
Split, of course, into two volumes, apparently the best of the Beast Weinstein and his distaste for long-running times, something Tarantino will soon pay no regard to whatsoever. Kill Bill tells us of Uma Thurman's The Bride, once a member of the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad, who miraculously survives the bloody assassination of her wedding party by said divas, whose boss, David Carradine's Bill, apparently wasn't happy with the resignation paperwork or something. Hell of a punishment for skipping the exit interview. Years later, and freshly out of a coma, the bride resolves on revenge, going after Lucy Liu's Oren Ishii, now head boss of the Yakuza, Vivisha A. Fox's Vernita Green, Michael Madsen's Bud, Daryl Hannah's Ellie Driver, on the way to Bill, where there, of course, is a sting in the tale. It's told in Stop We've Heard This One Before, in linear fashion, skipping around to various parts of the bride's previous life as an assassin, her relationships with the people she's now sworn to kill, her quest for Sony Chiba's Hattori Hanzo Steel, and her training with Gordon Liu's Pai Mei. But mainly, it's about the killing. I recall being underwhelmed with part one of this, and more on board with part two in the main, because while part one has most of the action, part two has most of the reasons you might actually care about the action. So I suppose what I'm saying is that this film can't really support being split in half, at least the way Tarantino's done it here. However, rewatching them back to back and at least somewhat remembering the plot and characters has led me to being a little less harsh on it this time around, my first revisit since its release. There was also perhaps an element of snobbery in that assessment 17 years ago. After all, Tarantino was not now and certainly was not then a master of action cinema, let alone the various flavours of mostly Asian cinema action he's paying homage or imitating here. Uh, After all, why watch this end of the peer tribute act when you can instead watch the source (laughs) inspiration? Now, to be fair to my stooty younger self, he's entirely correct, but I can now also view this more as the selection box of action that Tarantino appears to have intended, a starter course for the uninitiated, if you will, and he's at least had the good sense to surround himself with people who have mastered the art, like uh, Wu Ping Yen, and the largely practical effects make for a welcome change of pace to modern action outings. But even with a greater appreciation of Kill Bill, I still don't love it, and it's not actually moved much, if at all, in the Tarantino leak table. Uh, but I've maybe moved from don't bother to guarded recommendation. <laughs> uh, but yes, I, I tried to love it this time round, but I can't quite bring myself to be fully on board with it. It's just a bit too bloated for what ultimately is a disposable action film. Yeah, um, for this being... The, the Tarantino film, well, say films, mm. but yeah, it should be film um, that I, I disliked most. Um, I was gagging to watch it again. Well, somebody was something to do with this film was gagging. I forget <laughs> what. Um, <laughs> and it's, I don't know, you watch parts of it, and Quentin Tarantino wanted to make a, a martial arts film. Quentin Tarantino has no idea how to make a martial arts film. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino wanted to make an anime. Quentin Tarantino has no idea how to make an anime. And I'm honestly, I, I think, uh, I think all three of us were were of the mind that we liked Volume Two more than Volume One, um, which mm. was in contrast to most of the rest of the world mm. when we saw it the first time um, when it, on its release. I think I'm largely the same now, but I still don't like either part anymore. Yeah, I just I don't find it satisfying. I don't care about the characters. The non-linear structure means that there was no tension in a single scene up until the very last section of Kill Bill Volume Two because mm. you already know the prize getting out of it. So why would you care? And there's just there's so much extraneous fluff. Like there's a huge section of um, well, not a huge section, but a fairly large section of Kill Bill Volume One, it's like the origin of Oren Ishii. Who gives a crap? Mm. 
she's a minor character. The character that seems to have least beef with the bride. Um, yet there's an entire section about her backstory, but no other member of the um, Furious Five or whatever they're called. <laughs> um, none, of the, none of the other members get any backstory. So why does Oren Ishii? Oh, it's because Quentin Tarantino thought, I want to do some anime stuff. This will be a way to fit it in. It's not interesting. It's not important. It's not useful to the character of the bride or Oren Ishii. Like, I, I just don't care. And the majority of Kill Bill Vol. 1 can be dispensed with. And then the, the, the film tends to leave me with so many questions too. You have this horrible thing happening to, and I'm going to stop calling it the bride, Beatrix Kiddo, which for some reason is beeped, which is quite from the part of the fact you can hear her name clearly underneath the beep and read the lips, you know her name. What is this weird conceit with disguising her name? What is the point of that? I mm. never, I've never understood that and I still mm. don't. But I'm just like left with the question that you have. The, the film begins with this horrible thing happening to okay. Oh, and then while she's in hospital for four years, she's getting raped um, for money. Why was that necessary? Yeah. What did that add to the story or the she, character? She hadn't suffered enough. <laughs> yeah, especially given that she then... I, I wonder who hurt Quentin Tarantino. There's so many of his films about revenge of some description. Like, who was bad to him in the past? But she gets her revenge on that character within minutes anyway. Like the the not Owen Wilson guy that was selling her body, hmm. it just it seems exactly the the phrase that I mean, Craig hasn't she suffered enough? Like what what merit does that have in there? What utility does it have? Hmm. Um, and there's a lot of that. And like the swords on the plane seats, like I don't know, it, it just doesn't fit with the rest of the film. What are you saying, Mister Tino? It's like you probably just thought it looked cool, hmm. okay, hmm. I guess, but. It doesn't satisfy, and then you have kind of the usual tropes that if I felt the rest of the film more entertaining, I would probably forgive. But it's like, no, Uma Thurman's in a movie coma, so you know, after having not walked her four years, she's up and walking within half a day. Um, Seems also, reasonable. <laughs> she, she killed someone, and they didn't think to ever in the 13 hours she was in there look in the car of the person who was murdered. <laughs> I mean, it's like um, stuff that, like, if I was being entertained by, it, I might not care, but it's just—it's not entertaining. I, I still th- there's maybe enough yeah. individual cool bits that you could have stitched together a ninety-minute film that would be acceptably entertaining. But this bloated, what was this three-hour-plus mess when you take the whole two volumes together? It, th- there's just not enough here to sustain it in the slightest. So, yeah. uh, you've kind of, I feel like you've kind of touched on the thing there, Scott, is that this is... Uh, like I, at some point in the last week, I had to make the decision uh, as to whether or not to watch all of these movies or sacrifice a couple of them and actually spend time with my kids. And so the first... <laughs> watch all of them. Yeah, first on the chopping... Well, I wish I had. The first on the chopping <laughs> block was uh, the Kill Bill films. Um, because they're the the ones. Well, I, I made the effort to revisit Death Proof, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but Kill Bill, uh, I had seen at the cinema with you guys, uh, both parts, and yet again, yeah, technically, I enjoyed part two more than part one, but that wasn't saying much. Yeah. I really <laughs> did yeah. enjoy it, and uh, my recollection of it, and it will have to be a recollection because I haven't watched it at all since both parts were in cinemas is that this is the first of his original uh, screenplays where I felt like, and I'm sure it's not the case, but I kind of got the impression that maybe he hadn't thought about it enough in advance. And it just seems to be a series of cool individual vignettes, Scott, as you 
touch on. I think there were a series of individual ideas he had that would be cool for martial arts movies strung together. And really the overall impression I had at the time was that it was just trying too hard. And I don't know whether the people's disappointment with Jackie Brown made him feel like he had to swing back the other way and give audience what he perceived they wanted, but it just doesn't work. I hated Uma Thurman in that role. I, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of her of her acting ability in the first place, but some of the dialogue that was forced into her mouth was just cringeworthy. I really just felt it was a step too far in almost all aspects, and it felt like it was trying too hard to be fan service for the people who were disappointed by Jackie Brown. And I think it... <sighs> I just think it was a really big misstep and I don't know if it was just ego getting the better of him or whether he just for all that he proclaims to be because I think we can agree that he's got an encyclopedic knowledge of film but whether martial arts films which he's always professed a great love for are actually ones that he understands the structure of the least (laughs) I don't know but I just I I had to make a choice to to sacrifice a a couple of these films at least and it was always going to be Kill Bill because of the the Tarantino films that I've seen both volumes of this are are easily the 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 least enjoyable in my opinion as I say I'd hoped Um, I would have more appreciation from it on a review after this distance of time Uh, but no (laughs) not in the slightest not really I think part of the problem too is that I I don't care about any of the characters Mm -hmm. um why would you? You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. But part of it is dialogue, um, and I don't rate Uma Thurman at all. I like Hugh Craig. I just I don't think I've seen him in anything that isn't Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill, Dangerous Liaisons, or the producer. I have like one word for you, Drew: paycheck. <laughs> Can you take that one word back and not remind me of myself? <laughs> oh, I've seen her in Share My Pain. I, I I don't care to remember that, but yeah, so I've not seen him in a lot. So my, my main experience of Uma Thurman, because our role in Dangerous Lasers and Big, is of or working with Quentin Tarantino, and like she's never really impressed me. And also, I wonder too, like it's Kill Bill very prominently displays the fact that the bride character is based on a character created by Q and U, mm. which is. Again, we're back into this levels of pretension and hubris too. It's like the fourth film from Quentin Tarantino then describing the characters by Q and you. Well, obviously Quentin and you, why are you calling yourself that? You just, you just look like a fanny. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, Quentin, you're acting like a pure fanny, by the way. Yeah. You know, while we, um, while we were talking about Jackie Brown uh, and we were talking about um, his selection of actors, Drew, it occurred to me that I think what he's really good at doing is identifying in genre actors in particular qualities that perhaps they've not had the opportunity to um, capitalise on in the sort of movies that they've that they've they've been in, and then giving them that pedestal at a later date, sort of giving them the opportunity to express that. And I think he's really amazing at that. And I think that's one of the the, the most interesting things about Pam Greer and, and Robert Forster, his his choice in that he clearly identified um, aspects of of those actors who uh, that they hadn't had a great opportunity in their careers before to demonstrate. But I'm fascinated by his obsession with Uma Thurman, which, I mean, beyond his professed love for her feet, which which we are all forced to suffer, you know, in any of the films of, of his that she's she's in. I just don't see what the quality is he identifies in her in the same way that it's obvious to me what he saw in Pam Greer and what he saw in Robert Forster. 
Yeah, or even John Travolta. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, but the point I was going towards just um, was that whether I'm wondering with her being involved in the creation of the character, whether she's involved also possibly in the dialogue her character's given, because mm. it's uncharacteristically poor for Quentin Tarantino. And before I make my other point, it's like, I would like to slightly make up for your mention of Paycheck Craig by mentioning Gattaca, which I had forgotten she was in, but she's really good. So oh, fair enough. I have seen at least something good mm-hmm. um, other than the Quentin Tarantino films. But yeah, it's the, I think one of the biggest problems with it is the character. I mean, yes, horrible things have happened to her, but, but that's basically her entire character. Somebody had horrible things happen to them, but she's a killer. She's not a good person. Mm. Whereas like, Jules and Vincent in Pulp Fiction are not good people. They're hired killers. But there was so much character and charisma and chemistry between those two in particular. The dialogue is great. You could just sit and listen to um, Samuel Jackson and John Travolta speak those characters' lines all day without any problem. Um, so you care what happens to them because they're really entertaining. And The Bride and Kill Bill is a complete blank. What puzzles me about it is it's not that hard to rejigger the events of this film. Move some bits from two up front. Basically, here's an idea. Put it in the order like the order that time happens in. Try that for a change. Um, if you have yeah. a young, and then you have tension. If you have a, a young kid becomes you know falls under Bill's spell, gets taken, becomes trained as an assassin, eventually has a change of heart it then is betrayed then you've built up a reason to care about her then she gets revenge it's not that hard to book just put this in, put this in a sensible order and I think it would be a much better film and then you would have all the action beats the, the huge bits getting towards the end you could build up to them you have little action bits sort of coming to the training process structure it like a normal film like like the films I'm sure on any number of several dozen action films that Quentin Tarantino is more than familiar with and this would have worked, I think, much better than it does just now. But he's um, the yeah. guy who made his name non-chronologically Scott, and when he <laughs> tried to do something different, people were disappointed. Yeah. Sadly, yeah, that may um, be the case. That might have been <laughs> I really think it is. Yeah, yeah. It's weird that you think... I'm saying, it, that to me doesn't make sense, because again, I'm coming back to this idea of hubris. The fact he is... And not just like... It's not a marketing team at the company, at the movie studio or anything. In his own film, he's trumpeting this as the fourth film from right. Quentin Tarantino, referring to himself with a single letter when he talks about who direct, created the character. Like, that doesn't square to me with, like, having any sort of doubt about what structure it should have. Yeah. I don't get that. Let's, but, let's, yeah, it's, let's not forget, have, still, that though he's, for all the talent he's displayed so far, he's still only four films into his career. And I, and I think it is just perhaps things ran away uh, from under him. And this is just a just a misstep, maybe born of inexperience. Because I think those first three films are so accomplished, it's easy to forget that this is a guy who is still relatively early on in his filmmaking career. Yeah, yeah but at the same time, for someone as film literate as him, I really don't think he's book literate and I think maybe that would actually help some of his films story wise but mm. for someone as, as cinema literate as he is to to not appreciate that like you've removed all tension from your character being buried alive by the fact you've shown a scene half an hour earlier that you know that she got she got out of it and she's on the way because she's killed everybody else on her list so like that it feels like 
So he must know that. So the the reason for that decision is something else. Then I, I don't know what, but mm. I don't understand why he doesn't know that that would that's basically killed killed most of the the dramatic tension in his film. Again, given that the the story isn't strong and it's mostly seems to be a, a reason to have all these little vignettes, maybe he doesn't care. But it's like if you just like have you can have flashbacks because that's not the same as non-linear as I mentioned earlier but like Scott saying you just put this in order chop out most of the stuff especially the Ovenishi stuff then you could have a much tighter film and it's like and it, and it builds like to the final showdown with Bill and like she's the heroine you, you, you assume she'll get out of any situations and but she might not it mm. may be that because exactly with his only his fourth film too you're like well maybe Tarantino do something unexpected here because um, it's not uncommon for his films to end with almost everybody dying. So <laughs> you don't expect Vincent Vega to die, do you? Mm. So maybe she like she'd be trying to get to Bill, and oh, it never actually happens. But yeah, uh, I, I don't understand why he picked this structure and spread it over two films. Yeah, so I think we can agree it just doesn't work. It's not his worst film, um, but yeah. it's pretty poor. Speaking of which, uh, shall we move on to <laughs> Death Proof? Yeah, the, did I telegraph anything there, Scott, at all? <laughs> Tarantino's attempt to create his own version of the types of films he grew up with continued in 2007 with Grindhouse. His collaboration with Robert Rodriguez, in which the duo produced a pair of films intended to be shown as a double bill, but only released as such in the US, that attempted to capture the aesthetic of the low-budget horror and exploitation films typically shown in Grindhouse cinemas. Rodriguez made Planet Terror and Tarantino made Death Proof. Death Proof, and not Death Prof, as my fingers repeatedly insisted on typing last <laughs> night, which I imagine is a high school-based take on Joel Schumacher's Falling Down. And quite possibly a better made, film. <laughs> which would have made for a considerably more entertaining film was the next line I had written, Greg. <laughs> Incidentally, the only Tarantino film I hadn't previously seen before this episode... We're sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry, man. If I'd known that, I would have warned you. <laughs> I think you did actually, but um, you know, I, I've seen them all now. I'm a completionist, so um, <laughs> it's a Death Proof is a mashup of '70s slasher and muscle car films. In contemporary Austin, Texas, there is a group of young women who go to a taqueria and then to a pub. Nothing they do or say is in any way interesting, <laughs> entertaining, or consequential. After 45 minutes, anything at all happens when Kurt Russell's stuntman Mike drives his death-proof car head-on into the car containing the young women at high speed, killing them all. Michael Park's Elmer Graw pops in from Kill Bill, for some reason, and says he can't prove the stuntman Mike murdered the girls, but he can make sure that if he does it again, it won't be in Texas. <laughs> Somehow. A very moral stance anyway. <laughs> We cut to a little over a year later <laughs> in Tennessee and footage which is now pristine whereas the first half of the film was portrayed as old, scratched, damaged. This is a reference. <laughs> Here we find another group of young women. After another inconsequential 45 minutes passes and after the women have left their attractive friend alone in the middle of nowhere with a strange man, stuntman Mike appears and attempts to kill them but this time his victims fight back. There then follows 20 minutes of hugely underwhelming car chases and collisions and terrible, ugly-looking, horrible-sounding cars. Kurt Russell is the villain, 
though a pretty poor one, is he can't do menacing. But given his would-be victims miss a good two dozen chances to stop to allow one of their number, who is hanging onto the car's bonnet, to get into the car, and then injure and endanger lots of innocent people, before not even bothering to check whether the human hood ornament is okay when they do stop, I'd have been quite happy for everyone to die. But that's a little too close to caring about anything in Death Proof, something the previous 100 minutes worked hard to ensure I wouldn't and shouldn't do. Death Proof is, by a margin, and a pretty vast one at that, Quentin Tarantino's least essential, least entertaining and generally worst film. Whether any of its lack of dynamism is due to the fact that Tarantino himself served as DP here, rather than his usual collaborator Robert Richardson, or even Andre Sekula, a secure, the cinematographer in Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, I don't know. What I do know is that if you make an homage to slasher films and then limit your slasher to, effectively, two scenes in your two-hour-long film, you done messed up. <laughs> it is. And to make up for our last episode, Craig, and I apologise. Garbage. <laughs> uh, and I would like, just like to mention too that the, the whole Grindhouse experiment was an absolute failure and the fact that the best film to come out of the Grindhouse experience was in fact based on one of the spoof trailers they created mm-hmm. says everything. Yeah, <laughs> I, feel, I feel robbed because the way this kind of was originally kind of filtered down as pitches in, in various magazines sounded great because mm-hmm. it sounded like what you were going to get was basically a version of Death Proof that was about 45 minutes long, a version of Planet Terror, which would have been about 45 minutes long, with all those cool trailers like the um, machete and hobo with a shotgun and all that stuff in between, which yeah. was much better than actual films around it. Um, Planet Terror also was kind of crappy too. Uh, but I can imagine if you chopped the hell out of Death Proof, it would be entertaining enough to maintain that kind of runtime. Same with Planet Terror. And as a kind of experience for a, a few hours with that and in between, I think that would have been a quite a cool experience. What we've got instead is an absolute disaster zone. The death proof is just absolutely terrible. It's mm-hmm. I don't know if like, there's an argument. Okay, you've you've, you've got the bride in, in in Kill Bill, but a lot of a lot of Tarantino's films do not feature females in much regard. You know, um, obviously the one exception being the one where he's adapting someone else's work. So whether he was just decided like, no, I can write female characters, I'm going to do this, and then proves that he can't, or at least he can't write <laughs> these female characters, um, is whether he was just taking that upon himself to try and prove a point. He, it, this was not the venue for it, and this film is just deathly, deathly dull. Um, it's so easy to fast forward to it to the, what, charitably 10 minutes of actual interesting footage. I don't mind the car chases, I think they're, they're okay for what they are, but... This is no way to support two hours worth of film either side of it. You know what I mean? Um, Yeah, just very disappointing. Uh, Whether I'd forgotten how much I hated this film the first time round, because it wasn't actually (laughs) until I'd rewatched it that I went back and read my review from the old website, um, or whether it's just that I was being strangely, uncharacteristically optimistic and hoping that actually I would have missed. (laughs) Maybe, Maybe I would quotation marks appreciate it more <laughs> this time around i mean uh, I, uh, it's uh, aged like a fine milk yes it's aged like a fine uh 
turd. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, like you say, the, the value of this was always going to be in uh, the Grindhouse experiment as an interesting experience. Uh, and this is an interesting experience with all the interest removed <laughs> and the experience removed. <laughs> and it's just baffling that this film runs uh, to quite the length it does. Like you say, Scott, as originally advertised, the notion that these were going to be essentially short films bolted together uh around these trailers in, a, in an homage to the uh to the, the the that format i think there was i think there was some sort of cultural value in that and it's something that he and rodriguez could easily have gotten away with mm. but the choices every choice made around this film is absolutely baffling uh, the characters are spiteful, but then we're expected or encouraged to leer over them. I feel Kurt Russell is completely miscast. Uh, yeah. I think as as uh, stuntman Mike. I mean, remarkably, apparently there were scenes, whether or not they were filmed or they were planned and omitted, that would have clarified that the reason that stuntman Mike was doing this was because the only way he could get sexual gratification was from murdering people with his car. I would rather have spent the time watching Kurt Russell beat himself off in a car wreck than I would have done <laughs> listening to the conversations between these characters. They're just... You'd rather this have been Crash. Yeah, essentially. Uh, uh, they're just... Uh, uh, I mean, the characters are just unsalvageable. I don't know. Why do you think I want to spend 45 minutes with this group and then another 50 minutes with this group I don't I, I don't I really don't and if you <laughs> and if you expected that I would then there's something incredibly wrong in this relationship Quentin um, I had to take issue with something you said Craig before you carry I don't mean to interrupt you but mm. you called them characters yes yes no. sorry cutouts um, <laughs> I, it's just a really baffling and a really a, a a real sort of missed opportunity, and I wish someone else had picked the ball up and run with it in the interim because it was an intriguing project on paper, but just completely neutered um, at every possible stage, and we're left with this weird. Just it's not even a it's not even a sort of Frankenstein's monster of a thing. It's just crap. <laughs> Can you maybe imagine this as like a a short film anthology series that might have worked? Um. Right. Um, yeah. I don't know about um, Scott saying like thinking that this might have been like forty-five minutes. This doesn't have forty-five minutes of material in it. It's a two-hour film. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, I think I think it's a good but, call. If this were like a six-part anthology series on Netflix or something, you know, and you got other talented directors to submit sort of like really grimy sort of uh, genre pieces, yeah. then I think it could be interesting. But it's an homage to Grindhouse. Like here, you've got like 30, 35 minutes. Um, you don't have to like adhere to TV schedules if you're on something like Netflix. But that's the kind of thing I'm thinking. It's having an entry. It's an homage to this, these kind of sleazy, low-budget things um, that were popular for a while. And you try an interesting idea. And sure. like maybe you, maybe you start with like your pitch effectively as one of the fake trailers. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, that worked. Machete worked. It looked really interesting. It was funny. Machete actually works for about a one and quarter, one film and a quarter. Yeah, because um, it's like part of the start of Machete Kills actually has worked, and it just it completely runs out of any steam or any jokes um, or any kind of material. It works up to that point, so it's like it's yeah. it's the kind of it's kind of amusing that that was actually the best film in it. Yeah, but th- this film is so empty, and, and I, 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 like Michael Park's character suggests that. And starting man Mike's is uh, is getting sexual gratification for this, but it's like it's almost a throwaway line. 
Mm. And you know I mean, again, though, it's, like, it's the biggest problem. It's like if it's a slasher film that doesn't actually have your slasher in it for an, almost the entire runtime, mm. you've messed up. Yeah, you've got that seriously wrong. Yeah, flip it around because I mean, for for again, Kurt Russell miscast, but I still would rather have spent more time with him than with. I'm sorry, but with either of the two groups of young women, I mean, honestly, that that first car wreck, which we get replayed gloriously uh, and repeat four times to see the fate of each character in the car, I, the, it, instantaneously after that scene was over, the only the only thing I felt was good. I'm, g- I'm glad that happened to those people, and I probably shouldn't feel that way because I don't think that was necessarily your intention. Because I think you could do, you don't do it in two hours, but if you kind of, maybe it's like use something like Steven Spielberg's Jewel as a template, hmm. but actually have, rather than the, the truck chasing them through the whole film, hmm. have several kills. Yeah. And maybe at the end of the film, you start to see who this is. And, and maybe it's somebody you've seen earlier in the film, you didn't realise. Uh, there's so many ways you could make this interesting, but mm. it's almost like Tarantino avoided every possible way here. And it's just awful. Have it mainly from Stuntman Mike's point of view as he sort of eavesdrops on these characters and stalks them and stuff like that without necessarily having to see Mike, but, you know, mainly from his point of view. There's something interesting there potentially to be had. But mm-hmm. the, 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 our time is spent with entirely the wrong groups of people, and I'm not... I, to this day, I have... And on a second watch, I still have no concept of what the payoff of, of this is supposed to be. Uh, are we supposed to be cheering them on as they beat the crap out of him at the end of the movie? Well, I'm glad he did that because he's a murderer and I don't like murderers but <laughs> yes, it but didn't feel like a catharsis for me. They didn't have any compassion for all the other people's lives that they put in danger in that. Or even each other's lives. killed on the motorbike. Yeah, they didn't have compassion um, enough for each other to like you say, yeah. apply the brakes to the car. Yeah, and like I said, they, they left Mary Elizabeth Winstead in the middle of nowhere in that chili uniform with the guy and yeah. suggested she was a porn actress. Like, that's, that's funny. That's a good way to treat your friends. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it's so bad. And like, what do women talk about when they're rolling? Well, sex with men. Anything else? No, no, that's basically all that in beauty magazines. Yeah. <laughs> this film is not passing the Bechdel test. No. No. But he cannot trade women, Mr. Turner. A really weird really curiosity and, and not a good one. Okay, Craig. Um, yes. Jewish revenge fantasies then. Did Quentin turn off any more luck with those? Yes. Can I suggest that perhaps order might have been restored somewhat with Inglorious Bastards? The only good Nazi is a dead Nazi. I hope as creators and audience we can all agree on that point. If we can't, then this is your cue to unsubscribe and never trouble our RSS feed again. There is, however, an argument to be made that so long as Nazis exist, and unfortunately current evidence suggests that they very much certainly do, a quite useful Nazi might be one who spreads terror among the ranks of his fellow scum, telling tales of bear Jews and the terrible torture at their hands for anyone repugnant enough to affiliate themselves with that crooked little cross. Yes, in 2009, Tarantino decided that he'd make his boy's own Where Eagles Dare World War II movie lifting his title, if not the plot, from 1978's The Inglorious Bastards. In that movie, a group of rogue US soldiers volunteer to steal a V2 rocket from the Krauts. In Tarantino's version, the name of the game is to kill as many Nazis as you can, as horribly as you can, occasionally leaving behind a lone survivor to spread fear and legend among the Axis ranks. And on this occasion, 
I'm all right with that. <laughs> Led by Lieutenant Aldo Rain, Brad Pitt, the Bastards, important uh, vowel distinction there, have their sights set on eliminating a group of high-ranking Nazi officers at the premiere of a propaganda movie. As luck would have it, their goal coincides with that of a young Jewish refugee named Shosanna, Melanie Laurent, who, as a young woman, narrowly escapes extermination by Colonel Hans Lander, Christoph Waltz, though her family were not so lucky. Some years later, Shosanna now runs the theatre where the propaganda movie is to be premiered, and though it has come to the bastard's attention as a prime opportunity, you can be certain that Shosanna has her own plans. Coming off the back of my disappointment with both volumes of Kill Bill and Death Proof, I had taken another Tarantino sabbatical at this point in my movie-watching endeavours, and much as I missed out on Jackie Brown, it turns out to be another piece of bad timing on my part that I didn't catch up with Bastards, until after the release of the following movie, Django Unchained. While I appreciate coming back to Jackie Brown now that my faculties are more capable, I really wish I'd seen Bastards sooner, because it is one hell of a ride. If I had been sceptical before as to Tarantino's ability to manipulate his audience through anything other than pop music and ultraviolence, then this movie would have put my mind at ease. The opening act where a young Shasana evades Landa is easily one of the more knuckle-whitening examples of a major studio movie building tension of recent memory. And things only improve from there on. This movie's twist on the Mexican standoff, in which the bastards' German-speaking allies are wiped out in a bar massacre, is, I consider, one of the best standalone scenes of the director's career introducing and immediately disposing of no less a calibre of talent than Michael Fassbender in an act of filmmaking that requires great writing and great balls. And still the movie gets better. As a work of cinema, Inglorious Bastards is a wonderful balancing act of the serious and the downright insane, from genuinely mindful contemplation of the 20th century's darkest moments to downright nonsensical, wildly entertaining spraying of Tommy guns and MP40s. It somehow respects a global conflict rooted in vile ideology while affording its audience a roller coaster release valve, and that it ends in a Nazi massacre really is simply too good to be true. We will talk about another movie that seeks similarly OTT retribution for history's wrongs in a moment, but for now I'm quite happy to declare Inglorious Bastards potentially my favourite among this director's canon, if not technically his best. Well, that's um, quite the praise. Because I don't really like Inglorious Bastards all that much. Well, you and I can never be friends again. <laughs> Wait, sorry, um... Uh, uh, when I saw it first when it was released I really didn't like it much I like it a great deal more now mm-hmm. but you mentioned like spectacular scenes and that's the thing there are a couple of scenes in this I really like the bar one is great that scene in Denny Menuchet's farm at the start is fantastic though I don't quite get why Hans Landa didn't kill Shoshana it doesn't really make any sense it's not explained in the film so it kind of that was questions always hanging over me mm-hmm. that one has spirit <laughs> it does feel a bit like that doesn't it uh, but yeah so there are scenes I like and the film absolutely lights up when Christoph Waltz is on screen I think he's fantastic I think he's probably him and Sam, as I mentioned earlier him and Sam Jackson the two that like just really seem to get Quentin Tarantino's dialogue and really make it just sing but the, the rest of it I just like I don't know anytime Brad Pitt's on screen I'm like eh okay, this is underwhelming. And I like Brad Pitt a lot, but not in this film. Mm. Uh, and the strange thing about the film is that it's, the bastards kind of are irrelevant in the end. And 
I don't know. I thought really what I just, the film doesn't satisfy me in a way that Django does. I really, really like Django, and there are a lot of similarities between the two. Mm. And I wonder too, um, and it's kind of hard to talk about them separately, so I may as well mention it now. Is that like the idea of what happens with Django? Yes, it didn't happen, but the fact that maybe one slave managed to kill the people directly responsible for suffering of him and his friends, you know, maybe that would happen. But this is an alternate history that didn't happen, couldn't have happened. Um, and and also, while Hitler was clearly evil and the leader of this regime responsible for so much suffering, it's slightly more disconnected, so I find it less satisfying. Mm. And because it didn't happen, I think it's less satisfying. It's nice to think that maybe it stopped, but whereas... In Django, you see the direct results of the suffering and the people directly responsible for the suffering die horribly. Whereas and there's more of a disconnect and also the idea is that they're going to try and stop the war early and the, the exterminations accelerated towards the end of the war. So they would have saved a lot of lives in the concentration camps. But it's more just like, well, I, I guess we're saying that the war ended early, but the film ends before there's even any suggestion it actually happens. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, I just, I don't find it satisfying. Um, and the, so there are bits and pieces of the film I really like, but as a whole, I find it unsatisfying. It doesn't really hold together. And also, Mike Myers is in it, and um, I'm not tolerating that in the world. <laughs> I cannot sanction that. <laughs> <laughs> With another one I of his... I can't get behind that. His devoted comedy accents. Um, I definitely remember being a lot closer to your viewpoint when I first watched this back in the day and I don't think I've seen this uh, since then and I was a little bit surprised to watch it and find myself enjoying it quite a lot more it it is not up to the standards of some of the other films that we'll get onto uh, in my opinion Mm. but I did like a lot of it Um, like you Greg I liked the a number of individual scenes are really good and this time around for whatever reason that kind of managed to tide me over the, the, the scenes that I'm not quite so on board with. I don't mind Brad Pitt so much. He's not so impactful up until maybe the end when he's trying to infiltrate the the cinema as an Italian, which is actually quite funny. (laughs) That's quite funny, yeah. He's he's good there. Um, But yeah, Christopher Waltz, just incredible in in this film. I mean, he goes on to be more incredible than other films, but still. Uh uh, I I was watching this again uh, and really quite enjoying most of it. So I I don't know whether if I watch it again, I'll enjoy it more or less. It's probably not going to reach the level of Dango Unchained, which is, of course, very similar in a number of regards. But I, I guess I could I find myself, uh, perhaps, maybe it's just watching this at home, where I was already aware of the perhaps the sections that I thought were a bit slacking and I could kind of have my attention wander where I couldn't have done that in the cinema where I was confronted with it. Uh, I think... Again, I'm still falling somewhere between the, the two of you. Um, the, the bastards themselves, uh, as you mentioned, there's not really a lot to them. Um, it might have been nice to see a bit more of those characters, a bit more of those kind of backstories. Uh, I don't know how important that might or might not have been, but uh, that would, of course, take away from the um, uh, Daniel Brühl uh, sections and that kind of story, which I think it might have done. I'm not quite so convinced with that sort of almost love story kind of thing in the cinema uh, doesn't really do a lot for me. That's the kind of slower sections for me, even though Daniel was great. Um, yeah, it's, I, I kind of wish... I want, at the same time, I was thinking, more Daniel Brule, please, because I love Daniel Brule, but also more of him, but not in that character, because it's not a brilliant character. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, um, it's, 
I would certainly recommend that people watch this if you did give it a, sk- a skip as uh, Craig did entirely understandably off the back of Death Proof, let's be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, this is definitely worth filling that, that gap and it is a, certainly a good enough film to be worth your time. Um, it's, again, a lot of Tarantino's later works are a shade too long. I would say this is also a shade too long. Um, mm. There's only one that we get to that I think actually deserves its length. Uh, this one could do with a bit of trimming it, in my humble opinion, but when have I never not said that about any film? Um, so so uh, yeah. take that for what it's worth. I, I would still recommend it. It's it, it kind of by default goes into the bottom half of Tarantino's table, but only because the other half is so good. So I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't worry about that too much. It's certainly worth taking yeah. a look at. It's definitely lower half for me, uh, and I def- but I definitely liked it more than I did the first time I watched it. Mm-hmm. I still don't think it's brilliant, but there are there are certainly bits to appreciate. On your comment about the running time, Scott, actually, I know, like, Reservoir Dogs is 90 minutes, and I, I'd forgotten quite what the yeah. running time was in most of the other things. Like, oh, man, this is really quick. And I was like, oh, no, the, the running time inflation starts on the second film. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, it's I'm a pretty steep curve now. <laughs> um, but it actually turned out for most of these films not to be an issue. So that's great. Yeah, just as a reiterate again, like Christoph Waltz in this film is so good. Um, and actually, there's a couple of bits where th- there's real tension generated from the German officers. Uh, Christoph Waltz is one of them. Mm-hmm. Like, there's the the interrogation of Denny Menuchet at the beginning on his farm. Mm-hmm. And then there's the, the bit in the cinema, which is great because you kind of, even if you haven't seen it before, I think you can kind of guess it's coming, but I really like that they did it. It's like, well, you're going to portray these characters as Italians but like Germans don't have a good ear for Italian but it's like yeah you've already established that Colonel Landa isn't a fool mm-hmm. he's maybe a zealot he's maybe a terrible person he's sophisticated and cultured and intelligent and you've known you've seen how good he's how well he speaks English and how well he speaks French um, and then it's like you just know he's going to speak Italian perfectly <laughs> too don't you so not only is it an incredible performance from Vals but it's like that character works so well it's like ah yeah you're getting caught out right away yeah. if there's a there's a if there's anything about that character I don't like it's maybe it's when he's saying it's a bingo <laughs> um, because it's it's slightly too giddy mm-hmm. it doesn't quite fit with the rest of it but it, he sells that line, so it's so entertaining. So I kind of I'll let it slide. <laughs> and the other bit is the bar scene when yeah. it kind of comes down to the accents when you have that SS officer, August um, Deal, Major yeah, Major Hellstrom, yeah, yeah, who has um, who has said like he's been listening in the back of the corner, and then like, Michael Fassbender's trying to pass off why his accent is dodgy. Like that's really tense, and I like it's because. It's not yep. because of somebody's stupidity. It's not drunkenness. It's not bad luck. Event. Well, there's a lot of bad luck in that that character was there, but mm. it's like, no, he's doing it because he's intelligent and clever and that, that not all the Nazis here are just... Yeah, and, and you know, convincingly uh, evil as well. There's something really yeah. unsettling about his character and his... Um, oh, God, what's the word I want? Not his duplicity, but his, his ability to be, you know, uh, he's a bit of a smiling assassin, isn't he? He's, fre- he's yeah, outwardly exactly. friendly, yeah. but then immediately lets you know that he's on to you and that actually he's this he's a very dangerous man indeed. And that makes that kind of character so much more interesting as well as mm. much more threatening. And one of the things I dislike about Inglourious Basses is that the Hitler character is a clown. Yeah. He's not on screen a lot but he's kind of portrayed like a clown. Not that much. Honestly, like, like, Hitler doesn't have much of a character in this film. I assume the thinking is just like, well, it's Hitler. What more do you need to know? Mm. But for the time he is on screen, he's a bit of a clown, so that kind of makes him less of a threat. Mm. You know, so I don't know. I'm not quite sure what the 
the value of writing them like that was, but again, it's actually he's a fairly small character in Whereas, but the two German characters that are an actual threat is because they're intelligent. Yeah. Um, and not just because they're powerful or strong or dangerous or, or like, kind of, you know, going to snap or something like that. So, no, because yeah. they're smart. That's a much more compelling villain. Mm. Um, I just, I feel the whole, the film as a whole doesn't hang together that well. And, like, it's weird that, like, the bastards, which is what the film is ostensibly, who the film's ostensibly about and what they're named after, aren't in the film all that much and are kind of irrelevant in the end. Mm. It's so strange. I started out, so I started out more than lukewarm uh, on it, to be honest, first first viewing, but having watched it a few times more since, it really, really grew in me. And I don't know, it's just, I think it's the... I think because I've always been a fan of, and we talk about how you don't have guilty pleasures; you just have things you enjoy. And I really, I really have a soft spot for those boys' own uh, World War Two adventures, like Where Eagles Dare and and stuff like that. That have, it's just yeah. always been, it's just always been a thing. And I think maybe it plays into my fondness for that. I just find it, I just find it a riot from start to finish. Um, but no, I totally, I totally get that it might not be. I would also, uh, I would also like to clarify that I wrote these notes before I watched the last film on my list tonight as well so you may find a little bit of revisionist history of my own <laughs> going on as we get towards the end but i won't say any more about that just yet so we've talked about a fair bit already but we've gone from a jewish revenge fantasy to now we've got slave revenge fantasy scott with django unchained yes another outing in tarantino's 100 percent accurate history simulators Django Unchained <laughs> tells of Jamie Foxx's Django and his unchaining at the hands of a bounty hunter, Christoph Waltz's Dr. King Schultz, initially to help him identify some boundaries but soon become a partnership and a friendship, with Schultz then agreeing to help Django rescue his wife, Kerry Washington's Broomhilda, from the plantation house of Leonardo DiCaprio's Calvin J. Candy. A perhaps overly brief summation of nearly three hours of cinema, although Django sure as hell doesn't feel its length, but as mentioned in reviews past him, this is less about the narrative although it's more than strong enough for this sort of thing, but about the characters, from Fox's steely resolve to the disarmingly charming Dr Schultz and the on-the-surface equally disarmingly charming Candy, although that's a mask that slips pretty quickly, uh, backed up with a who's who of nigh on everyone's Tarantino's worked with uh, in memorable roles from the minor to the major, like the incredible Samuel L. Jackson's Stephen Warren. It's very much taking the cartoon alternative history ball of bastards and volleying it into any and all nets available, being two spaghetti westerns as bastards was to jingoistic war films. While for once this has thematic content that could conceivably be analysed, dealing of course with the acts and legacy of slavery in America, at the risk of being dismissive of Tarantino's development as a director and a person, I suspect that still, if questioned, most of the reasons for anything that's happening here would be answered because I thought it would be cool and or funny. And again, it is cool and funny, very much so, the most so, arguably. Across the board, the cast are excellent, the characters are charming and or loathsome, sometimes at the same time. Uh, the -the over-the-top violence is amusingly comedic, and overall, it's just a great deal of fun. If not a film, apparently, that I can say a great deal about that I've not said about Tarantino's prior work. It is very good. I, it seems, am not. But yes, delights to rewatch. uh Tremendous stuff. Um, everyone in it is excellent. It's just an incredibly entertaining slab of cinema. Very cathartic. Lots of really cool moments in it. Yeah, just a really good film. Loved it. Yeah, um, I I love Django Unchained. I I'm unsure whether I'd say it's my favourite Tarantino film, though it's certainly in the running. It's certainly the one I find most entertaining, though, mm. which, which may be enough to 
to sway the day yeah. um, because it's just it's so much fun and honestly there are times when Jamie Foxx is maybe a little too taciturn but for the character it mostly fits and he's a lot of fun there's like the brooding menace there yeah. but uh, yeah Leonardo DiCaprio is great it's like kind of showing that the this whole idea of southern charm and hospitality is absolute bull crap right <laughs> um, and he gets what's coming to him and it's really satisfying <laughs> But Christoph Faltz, yeah. he's just, he's on. <laughs> you this, really want me to shake your hand? <laughs> yes, I know. Like, just just the, like the speeches he's given at the start about being a dentist and stuff, and like the way he's delivering that dialogue to the sheriff in the town or the marshal in the town that he starts after he saw the sheriff. Every line he delivers perfectly. It's so entertaining. It's just this, as I said earlier, the only person that comes close to making. Tarantino's dialogue sounds so good as Sam Jackson and, oh. and that's and but Valtz takes it to another level it's amazing it's so entertaining and I mentioned already during our talk about Glorious Bastards that like why I find this more satisfying because it like, didn't happen it could have happened and it's a more oh. direct connection and I kind of think that works I guess maybe it's a scale thing because how do you make up for six million deaths you know just by pretending you killed this guy you don't but you can certainly chattel slavery in the United States of America. You can't atone for that in any way of like this revenge fans either. But when you take it down to the level of this one person did this particular bad thing to this one woman or this group of people and this the guy that got torn apart by dogs, like right, it's visceral and it it's so close to what you've seen that it, it just works so much better. And it's why I find it so satisfying. And also, it's bloody funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and even, it's, I mean, there's a lot of humour in Tarantino's other stuff, certainly, but it's weird that this is probably his funniest film too. Like, um, stopping in the middle of the film to have an argument about the Ku Klux Klan style hoods. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's great. I approve of this. This is really funny. Mm-hmm. I think it is ge- pro- possibly genuinely the most humorous of uh, of his films. I don't know. I mean, there's there's certainly plenty of humor in Bastards, but I think I think I probably laughed more at this than any of his other films. And it's a very very close thing between this and Bastards for me. I have to say, I really it it, it was it was on account of how much I enjoyed uh, Django Unchained that I went back to revisit Bastards. It is just, it's, it's wild again in the same way that Bastards has been again incredibly, incredibly satisfying. And I'm not, uh, I'm not the biggest fan of Jamie Foxx in a day-to-day way, but I thought he was, I thought he was phenomenal in this, but it is definitely Christoph Waltz is just something else entirely. And I think that character in the wrong hands could easily have, Come across, just fallen flat on you know on its on its face. I think yeah. it's testimony to to how how well he um, inhabits that role that he manages to pull it off. Because it would seem like uh, I guess it would probably on the face of it seem like an outlandish character because we've all been so conditioned by the history of westerns to find a character like that unusual. Whereas if you pick up a history book, you will understand that you know people of all nationalities were were crisscrossing their way across America at that point. That's the whole point of what America is and initially <laughs> did for people. Uh, but I think Waltz is uh, he's he's definitely the heart and heart and soul of this. 
and when 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 his arc concludes, I was genuinely gutted, and I thought, "Where's this? Where's this film going to go for the rest of his running time without its without its beating heart?" But it largely succeeds, and that it does so with with such humor like this is it's not this is not the only tarantino film that my dad has has watched but it's the only one that i have watched along with him <laughs> and it was it was such a great experience uh to to sit with my old man and actually both be laughing really heartily at, at the same sort of bits um and it also there's a there's a really strange satisfaction to be had in watching tarantino dynamite himself <laughs> <laughs> I was going to mention that if you didn't. It's not. It's not that I don't appreciate the work you're doing, uh, Quentin. I bear. I bear you know well. Well, well. Uh, we just spoke about here. death proof, didn't we? Um, but he doesn't deserve to be blown up for that. But there's something really satisfying about those moments of like super dark humour like that, which uh, just just sets it apart. And again, it's that balancing act he manages between the absolutely macabre and incredibly serious subject matter that he's approaching but that he manages to somehow do it with humour it's just uh, yeah it is just uh, just a wild film super enjoyable that um, that uh, well, it's not a climactic shootout by any means but that the, the sort of the major shootout at the house is just uh, just a <laughs> wonderful wonderful set piece um, yeah, yeah Candy's uh, sister on the uh, the, the way yeah, back I was going to mention I'll say goodbye yeah <laughs> Yeah, I say um, this is. I think I mentioned it when we first spoke about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when we covered it last year. But slightly concerned about myself for cackling like a demon, like I was mm. um, at some of the ultra violence in that. And this film was kind of has preceded that too because the first time I saw this in the cinema, I was just riotously laughing at the fact that she got thrown halfway across the house like pulled back in a pulley by this mm. gunshot and, like, it's that. so cartoonish I'm pretty sure my dad's denture came out <laughs> we were howling yeah, at that yeah it's really funny like, I am left with one question which is why the Australian accent but, um, he, he does blow himself up with dynamite afterwards so you know mm. it's, it's, he's vain enough to want to put himself in these films his own films but he's not necessarily so vain that he won't in some way ridicule himself or have himself die ridiculously. <laughs> like, even Reservoir Dogs, I mean, the, the great thing about Quentin Tarantino's character Reservoir Dogs um, is he gets shot in the head. <laughs> and in this he gets blown up with dynamite, so you know, that's good. <laughs> Next on our journey through Quentin Tries the Genres is the Western, a full-blown Western, with 2015's The Hateful Eight in which a blizzard strands a disparate group of travellers at a way station in the mountains of Wyoming. A number of the director's previous collaborators return here, including Bruce Dern, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, Walton Goggins, Samuel L. Jackson and Kurt Russell. This last plays bounty hunter John the Hangman Ruth, who we first meet handcuffed to Jennifer Jason Lee's Daisy Domergue, a wanted murderer he is transporting to Red Rock for trial and execution the film suggesting no doubt whatsoever over her guilt. On the road, he, separately, encounters two distressed travellers, fellow bounty hunter Major Marquis Warren, Sam Jackson, and a former Confederate soldier and soon-to-be new sheriff of Red Rock, Chris Mannix, Goggins. Ruth reluctantly grants him room in his privately booked stagecoach, fearing either an attempt to steal his bounty or an attempt to free her. 
Ruth's perturbation increases on the group's survival at Minnie's haberdashery, the roadside inn where the familiar owners are nowhere to be found. In their stead is Senor Bob, Damien Bichir, a Mexican who claims to be an employee, as well as a few guests. Michael Madsen's Joe Gage, a cowboy, Oswaldo Mowbray, Tim Roth, somehow managing to sport a spectacularly unconvincing English accent, <laughs> and the local executioner, and a confederate general, played by Bruce Down. Certain that at least one of these people is not who they claim to be, Ruth disarms them all, with the exception of Major Warren, and the group settle in for an uncomfortable intense few days together until the blizzard passes and the road to Red Rock is passable again. Not that Mr Tarantino's previous work suggests anything at all, but you may reasonably surmise that not everyone who walked into Minnie's haberdashery will be leaving in the same manner. It'd be nice to be able to talk about Quentin Tarantino's take in the Western, perhaps comparing it with genre-redefining works like those of Sergio Leone, of whom Tarantino is a noted fan, or even Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. But whether or not old Quentin is capable of making a Once Upon a Time in the West... He clearly has no interest in doing so, as The Hateful Eight is a Quentin Tarantino film. It's just that this Quentin Tarantino film happens to be one set in 1870s Wyoming. In that regard, there's not much else to say. For the most part, I enjoy Quentin Tarantino films a lot. And I enjoy this a lot. The dialogue is fun, if at times distasteful, and the performances are all very enjoyable. Kurt Russell in particular feeling much more comfortable here, bringing back aspects of both Tombstone's Wyatt Earp and Escape from New York's Snake Plissken than he did as a murderer in Death Proof. And while its near three-hour running time is pushing it a bit, it's only the flashback scene that shows the setup that feels extraneous. Uh, it's in the visuals, though, that The Hateful Eight really stands out. Shot by Robert Richardson, using Ultra Panavision 70 lenses last used on the 1966 film Khartoum and thought to no longer exist, which were then retrofitted to modern Panavision cameras and the film filmed on 65mm Kodak Vision 352-19 stock, all you film fans out there, allowing the director's dream of shooting a 70mm film to be realised and resulting in his best-looking film. These lenses were then used in an unexpected location, Indoors. The super wide 2.76 to 1 aspect ratio that the lenses allowed provides a genuinely interesting look to the film and also allows multiple characters to be seen at once in multiple scenes, capturing reactions and movements without having to change the coverage. And it just works so well as the tensions rise. The music isn't left out either, with The Hateful Eight being the first Tarantino film to feature an original score, composed by the legendary Ennio Morricone plus the addition of three of the tracks from Morricone's unused score from The Thing. I continue to enjoy this film. I am, though, just left with that constant sense of disappointment that there isn't more there. I want a steak, Quentin. Stop giving me dessert. (laughs) I liked this more second time round, because this time round I was prepared for its deeply unsatisfying rope-a-dope of the presenting the whole presenting a, a whodunit scenario and then immediately answering that with a character who yeah. you haven't seen for the last two hours by that point. I think it's about two hours. And I found that incredibly annoying first time round <laughs> because it is the equivalent of the butler did it, which 
as an age right or wrong, you don't do. And uh, it's a bit DXS macular, isn't it? Yes. Um but this time round I was a bit more prepared for that and I could enjoy it a bit more and just enjoy it as a Tarantino film, in which case as you say it is a Tarantino film. It does the Tarantino things, uh, of which we have enumerated uh, in uh, reviews passing to the point that I don't think we need to say too much about it, otherwise I'd be repeating myself. Um, yes, it, it is a lot of fun. Samuel L. Jackson is incredible in it and makes the whole thing worthwhile. All the characters are you know, really great, fun characters to kind of spend a few hours with. I I would argue this is too long. I could have done with half an hour being chopped out of this. Um, it's it pushes it a little bit for me, but not not too much. I've certainly seen much worse offenders in my time. Um, I think this could have been tightened up a bit and been more uh, been bit, bit better for it. But it is still a very good film, and I enjoyed it a great deal. Yeah, I mean, it's the bit I mentioned. It's got that the setup must be it must be in the region of twenty minutes or something. I think. Yeah. Um, and it's unnecessary because you can surmise most of it, mm-hmm. and anything you can't, you could have. Like had one line of dialogue, like <laughs> yes. yeah, my brother was here, um, waiting or something like that. Yeah. And that's that's the. It, it's not so much the running time; it's just that it was so unnecessary. Yeah, uh, I actively disliked this film to a great degree for many of the reasons that you have mentioned. If anyone can offer me an explanation as to why this film needed to be almost three hours long, I would gladly hear it uh, and then dismiss it roundly. Um, You don't need the first two chapters. Uh, (laughs) uh, We learn enough about the characters and it can be covered in dialogue through the rest of the film in uh, in the remaining setting of the cabin i think that would be a much more interesting film um i'm surprised that you i'm surprised that you engaged with the characters so much scott i didn't i really didn't engage with i didn't like any of these characters i liked some of the performances but i didn't particularly enjoy the time that i spent with them um i did think because the only substantial thing that i've seen walton goggins uh in before was um uh sons of anarchy right um, and so my experience with him was incredibly limited, and I think he actually pulled off a pretty good balance and act here um, of making a, a, a potentially deeply unlikable character at least engaging and interesting. Yeah. I don't really care for anyone else. And uh, what else was I going to say? Yeah, um, I, I was going to refer to Deus Ex Machina myself, Drew, um, in uh, deductive reasoning terms, because much like you, Scott, I have great issues with how this plays out in the resolution of this <laughs> film. Um, not least of all, hey, Bob, do you know how I know you're talking because of this thing you couldn't possibly have known about and nor could the viewers. I'm going to pull a sign that says I hate Mexicans out of my ass because otherwise I can't explain this away. And I think that's just really, uh, I just think that's really bad writing. Um, I was surprised actually because I was quite looking forward to watching this and it came as quite a disappointment, so much so that I nearly took another one of those sabbaticals. Only third time lucky I didn't and I'm really glad I didn't. Um, we'll talk about why we'll talk about why in a minute but yeah i just i i really couldn't engage with this at all maybe i'll come back to it at some point in future and give it a second viewing but at two hours 45 or whatever when you say scott it could do with half an hour chopping out i honestly think it could do with losing an hour um there's just no justification for the length of this film whatsoever and it was a weird, I thought it was a weird step backward, but I appreciate other people's mileage will, of course, vary. I just, it just rubbed me up the wrong way in, in so many different aspects. 
but I can see why it would Craig and certainly in other circumstances it would have rubbed me the wrong way mm. but I just I really enjoyed it I mean it's hard to say that I like any of the characters and in a film called The Hateful Eight mm. I'm going to yeah, guess that you're probably not supposed to <laughs> mm. but I, I don't know I think it's just because this is this is good Kurt Russell has turned up here and Sam Jackson is Sam Jackson so I kind of like them because of the actors more mm. than the characters I think yeah and what's weird about this actually is like this didn't feel to me so much like Quentin Tarantino does a western. In the end, this and so this time, I was really was like, this is Quentin Tarantino's take on Agatha Christie. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Although um, her structure's a bit better because she's less likely to have a man hiding in the basement. Yes. <laughs> if this had come out after Knives Out, everybody would be talking about how it was Tarantino's Knives Out. <laughs> but I don't, again, uh, touching on the treatment of female characters again, was it really necessary to show the sort of massacre? Yes, and that whole section is, is unnecessary too. It's like you just assume they've killed them, and that, that's. I feel like it's almost a play to try and justify the brutality thereafter. But then don't 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 make that so brutal. Uh, it's like as if to say, well, look, the bloodbath at the end is justified because look at the horrible, the horrible acts these people committed. It's like, uh, yeah, I just, I just couldn't get behind that at all. I just, uh, it just didn't sit right with me. I'm not trying to be Captain Social Justice Warrior or anything. There's mm-hmm. context in which that would be entirely justified. I just don't think this movie sold it to me. Uh, I just found it problematic for a whole number of reasons and just nothing quite clicked together. And it's a shame because I was really looking forward to it. I'll be honest, I wasn't even that... I wasn't that blown away by the cinematography. I'm not convinced that needed to be a 70mm film either. But again, I know enough people uh, would disagree with me on that that I'm, I'm entirely open to being wrong about it. But I just... Yeah, I just... I don't know. I just felt like it was a string of odd choices that were just like one step removed from the right thing uh, and it didn't quite gel for me but again listen enough enough people really engage with this i've heard people say this is their favorite tarantino film more more power to them uh but just yeah for whatever reason just not for me it doesn't it's not my favorite it's in contention for it, but i enjoy this a great deal although um you mentioned the chapters craig mm. it's like that's one of those sides like why in chapter four is there suddenly a narrator like yes, a few of these Tarantino films. He does that, that a couple of times. Yeah, it's like, do you not have confidence enough in your ability to tell this stuff visually? Why do we suddenly need somebody to drop in a voiceover? Yeah, <laughs> so I dislike unnecessary narration films generally, mm. but um, it's weird because for someone yeah. who's so confident, it comes across as a lack of confidence, and I'm sure that's not why. I'm sure he feels it was justified for other reasons, but I don't understand why that can't be covered in. Look, the rest of the dialogue does its job. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a few of these films, and mm. I had made this note about film. This is the one I really want to mention because it's, it appears out of nowhere. Yeah. It's like all the films going, chapter four, narration about what Daisy Domergu saw. Yeah. There's no narration after that. Why? Yeah. It, it's, it's like you. Um, it's literally to mention the something fact. Something shiny in that scene. Yeah, and it's literally to mention the fact, oh, 15 minutes ago, this is. It's like you could, that's a really weird. There are other plot points in this film that if you really wanted to put a voiceover in, would have made more sense to do it. It's not. Yeah, I don't see why it was necessary for that particular scene. I think we could have grasped that we were seeing something that had happened 15 minutes earlier through other means. Hmm. 
Yeah, couldn't you just have had while the speech is going on and Senor Ball's playing the piano, all you need is one cutaway. Mm. See Jennifer Jason Lee looking to the side, one cutaway, an unknown hand pouring the poison in. Mm-hmm. That's it. And you, you cut out 10 minutes of film there too. It's like, it's, yeah. it's a strange choice. It's one of the things that bothers me most about it because it, it stands out so much because it doesn't fit with the rest of the film. Mm. It's so unnecessary and it's so artless. Yeah. And it's a weird thing he returns to time time and again. But yeah, it does feel, you're right, it does feel particularly egregious here. Because it's the one instance, I think it stands out even more. Uh, and it does. It happens in their next film as well, where yep. Kurt Russell's suddenly narrating bits of the film when he wasn't before. Yep. But, um, it's, it's so egregious in this. It's like one thing that really stands out to me. Um, yeah. That, like, why is this in here? But I like the rest of it, so I'm yeah. more forgiving than I suspect you are in yeah. this case. There are moments I enjoyed it. Just for me, it just didn't hang together. But there you go. Shall I round us off then with Once well, Upon I was a Time? To say, yes. Um, Sorry. Was our, our, our final film we've actually covered on the podcast before, and Scott and I have both spoken about it. So oh, fair enough. It might, might be quite interesting to see quite how this film struck you, Craig. Oh, I don't remember listening to that particular episode, so there we go. So yes, this might be interesting. Um, described alternately by the director himself as either his magnum opus and or his love letter to the golden age of Hollywood, Once Upon a Time, Ellipsis in Hollywood, is the most recent of Tarantino's efforts. And if I may jump the gun and go straight to some sort of conclusion, a pretty good distillation of his craft to date. Based loosely on the histories of a number of Hollywood leading man stunt double partnerships, though none so much as that of Burt Reynolds and Hal Needham, Once Upon a Time largely follows fading 60s TV Western star Rick Dalton, Leonardo DiCaprio, and his longtime stunt double Cliff Booth, Brad Pitt, as they find their careers on the wane at the cusp of a new decade in both filmmaking and social norms. Battling rampant alcoholism, Dalton's relationship with Booth has become more of a client-minder affair, their codependency unexpectedly pure and bereft of cynicism, their unspoken affection for each other completely intangible, yet obvious through their dynamic. Woven into the Dalton-Booth dynamic almost as an aside, the movie's secondary plot thread follows the tragic figure of Sharon Tate, Margot Robbie, as her own career gathered pace, though her fate, as history books have it, is rewritten in a startlingly revisionist piece of corrective chronology. (laughs) Sound familiar? Um, If there is a point to the movie, it appears to be as an outlet for Tarantino's dream of how the 60s should have closed out, a sort of time-travelling restorative justice, perhaps. One suspects, however, that the more important thing here is the journey, and what a journey it is. As Tate, Dalton and Booth pursue their dreams and battle their demons respectively, Tarantino presents late 60s Hollywood as a rich tapestry of character, sounds and visuals, pulling together all of the tools he's collected over a quarter century to sculpt perhaps his most mature work since Jackie Brown, if not of his career. That's not to say Once Upon a Time is dull or bereft of those hallmarks we've become familiar with. In fact, far from it. The one or two instances of violence serve to remind us how ugly that violence is. The soundtrack is, of course, cooler than cool. And the cameos from recognisable faces are even more numerous than ever. Rather, it's the way we as viewers are never in doubt as to how these aspects are fully in service of the story, rather than Tarantino's ego on this occasion, that impressed me most. And the same can be said of his clearly affectionate nods to incidental characters such as Bruce Lee and Steve McQueen. Yes, you heard me. Bruce Lee and Steve McQueen are incidental characters in this movie. 
I understand that in the case of Mike Moe's fantastic portrayal of Lee, some feathers were ruffled, not least of all among the martial arts legends family, but let's just say my mileage varied on that one, and I think this, along with the rest of the name-checking, is both wholly justified and unbelievably entertaining. Remarkably, given conversations we have frequently around these parts, including about five minutes ago, Once Upon a Time completely justifies its length, and in fact, at a running time just shy of two and three quarter hours, this is one of those rare occasions where I could easily have spent another hour with these characters without fearing fatigue. One understands there may be a three or even four hour cut to be released at some point in the near future, and I, for one, would like you to take my money now. If indeed this proves to be Tarantino's penultimate picture, it leaves me in great anticipation of what his parting gift to us all will be. If instead he awakes one morning and unexpectedly declares Kill Bill was two separate movies after all, then it's hard to imagine a better or more fitting way to cap off a career in movies than this immensely enjoyable love letter to that medium's heyday. I saw this in the cinema last year. We spoke, Scott and I spoke about it on the podcast last year. And I liked it a lot. And curiously, I liked that a bit less this time. Yeah. And I wonder if that's maybe just because it, compared to all of the other films that Tarantino's done, it's the most recent rewatch. Mm. Um, so perhaps I'm slightly more familiar with it. Uh, but watching it this time, though, I still enjoy it a great deal. I still cackle like a demon at the ridiculous violence at the end and <laughs> still worry about myself more than a little. And I, I continue to not have the same issue that Scott espoused when we spoke about it which is that he thought it was like excessive violence to women and I, and I just don't read it like that I want to be interested to see if Scott still does mm. if he has watched it again but again I am left with the same question at the end is, is why Sharon Tate mm-hmm. Sharon Tate isn't a character in this film she's basically a person who's there in the background right why you could make this film about this setting this time period some references to people certainly but why why this person's story why that in the background and the 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 ending is somehow making it that Sharon Tate's horrible murder didn't happen I don't understand why that's the point of Mm. the story and it really bothers me because it adds nothing in fact I feel it detracts substantially from the rest of the film and I'm just I don't know offended isn't the word but I'm just I certainly baffled as to why that's in there because you're not given any information about Sharon Tate. I think yeah. what I said the last time is what I'm going to say now is that what happened to her was a horrible tragedy. It was a it was a horrible horrible thing that happened to her, and perhaps she would have been a wonderful mother, and perhaps she would have had a great career in films. Who knows? But she wasn't a particularly significant actress so that it's not like you're mm. you're immediately sure that she would have had this great career and lots of horrible things happen it's like why is the Manson family Sharon Tate in this at all that, that's the biggest problem I have with it yeah so I, I the, finished out quick. The, no it's alright the Manson things as well the, the thing you're right the thing that stuck out for me as well was right I get it that at the end Dalton has has earned his right to that pool party that you know that he and Booth were talking about earlier. Like I, you know, I could only be one pool party away with um, uh, uh, what's his name? Oh God, his name's gone right out of my head. P- Peter Polanski. Yeah, uh, Roman Polanski. I could I could just be one pool party with Polanski away from reigniting my career. Knowing what we know about Polanski, could we pick someone else? Mm. Yeah, but that that was another thing. Paul was like, also, there's a plans you think in a person from a director who had his entire career associated with the Weinstein's. Mm. 
not so on board with that. Mm. Oh, this is going to ruin this for me. <laughs> the more we talk about this, the more it's going to ruin it. And I really, really enjoyed it. My thinking on this hasn't evolved all that much since last we spoke about it. I'm still bemused, befuddled and bewildered by all of the real life, if you will, Hollywood aspects mm. that have been put into this. I don't. It's an entire B story that has no place to in there and there's nothing to do with the actually enjoyable bits in it. It'd be a much stronger film without it. Uh, you've spoken about Sharon Tate. I just, I just don't see... I see the references in, from what Tarantino's been interviewed and what, what he's saying about it. And he's saying, you know, I wanted to show more of Sharon Tate as a character. But if you wanted to show more of Sharon Tate as a character, why didn't you show more of Sharon Tate as a character? Because she isn't. Because mm. she's not a character. What I learned about She's Sharon Tate from this film, what I learned from it is that she bought a book once. So, <laughs> you know, there's that startling insight. But the rest of it, and I, I was trying to work out... She's terrible taste. <laughs> Terrible taste of glasses. Yes. We know that too. Between that and I was trying to work out the exact chronological timeline of exactly when Bruce Lee pissed in current and Tarantino's cornflakes, but because <laughs> I don't have any other explanation for that. <laughs> I would I would just because like the the Bruce Lee thing it's inexplicable, right? I was like, it's why inexplicable is it and I laughed my ass off. I have a, exactly, I have however, that's exactly where I'm going. There is one thing I'd get to because I have come to the conclusion after watching all these films back to back in chronological order, basically what I've come to the what he was trying Tarantino <laughs> was trying to say there was that I thought this would be cool and or funny. <laughs> because yes. that is the level of depth that he's put into everything that he's done so far. So on that basis, <laughs> I kind of now that, give that's a clear given me the hiccups now. <laughs> I now kind of appreciate this yeah, film exactly. a little bit more because of that. I now understand what Quentin Tarantino was trying to say is nothing. So with that kind of zen Cohen <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. in mind, I can forgive it a lot of what it's trying to do. Same thing with the, the kind of violence wars. But I, I do think it is still a bit more gratuitous the way that it really does focus on the close-ups of that poor woman's face getting well, not poor woman, I suppose, but her face being saved Smashed in the mantelpiece. It is gruesome, yeah. um, but in the context of everything that he's done, you know what, I don't think he, again, I don't think it means anything other than he thought it would be funny. So, no, yeah. you, you know, um, you, you, I'm now kind of giving him a, a pass because I don't think he's ever trying to say anything other than I thought it would be cool. Um, uh, that is, if anything, all I can say about <laughs> Bond's time in Hollywood. But all these, uh, the, the, the annoying thing is, if you take all these bits out, these bits that I just don't think of any, like, Damien Lewis? What? Why are you here? Go away, Damien Lewis. We don't like you in the first place, let alone when you're trying to be Steve McQueen with that weird haircut. We, st- um, we still haven't forgiven you for Dreamcatcher, Damien Lewis. Yes. Go, and, go and talk to Duddits. <laughs> but look, all that stuff aside, DiCaprio and Brad Pitt are fantastic in it. And all that mm. but all that arc of his, with, if you go rid of all that, you can keep the Manson family in if you like. That that kind of works for what we're doing here. Uh, all the, the rest of it, I think, is really enjoyable. I really enjoyed all that stuff. And DiCaprio's fabulous in this. Um, mm. Really great uh, performance and really interesting character. Same with uh, uh, Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt's the standout great stuff. for me. Just great stuff, and I really, really enjoy all of that stuff. And I just, it's just undercut by I, I, I just bewilderment by the rest of it. It's like again, the, the, this just should have been on the cutting room floor. There's, a, uh, I don't necessarily think it feels too long, but again, if you just chopped all that stuff that I was complaining about there out, it would be a really, really, really enjoyable ninety-ish two-hour film, as opposed to a really enjoyable two-hour film with another 45 minutes of weird stuff in there that I don't quite understand why he's there. <laughs> I, I just, I really do enjoy this film. It's, again, my, my over um, arch and criticism, like, it's why Sharon Tate... Um, 
And like there's certainly s- suggestions or references to Natalie Wood's death. Yes. Um, with yeah. Brad Pitt's character, whose wife called Natalie died in a boat. It's like, mm-hmm. hmm, that's yeah, super subtle. Close to the mark. Well yeah. <laughs> um, and, and kind of, I don't know, it's like Christopher Walken was implicated in that as well. He's been in one of Quentin Tarantino's films too. So <laughs> sure he's stabbing him in the back. Yeah. But yeah, it was like, I mean, you have that. You see, but that that works because it's just a reference to stuff that was happening in Hollywood then. Yeah. Right? But when you have Sharon Tate, like, front and centre as, like, a, I don't know, like the cause celeb of this film, like, why is that in there? It's so frustrating because the rest of it I find so entertaining. And, like, the why he's, Quentin Tarantino's decided to make Bruce Lee an absolute asshat and then get his um, arse handed to him by Brad Pitt. Why is that that? I don't know. You know what? I also don't care yes, because yeah. I laughed like a drain in that scene because it's really, really yeah, funny. Uh, um, people, I know, and I think it was maybe Bruce Lee's daughter taking exception at the fact, oh, he's just been portrayed as, as being incredibly arrogant. Sorry? Bruce Lee didn't have any arrogance about him because I've seen I've seen plenty of archive footage of Bruce Lee being incredibly arrogant. He was also an incredibly uh, talented uh, performer and martial artist, <laughs> but please don't tell me he wasn't arrogant. And I don't think it's um, I, yeah, I, and I I don't know what the purpose of including those scenes were, but man, I laughed my ass off, and yes. I'm grateful for that. That very much was the purpose of including those scenes. Yes, yes. and then you get in you, my you, memory that a, scene is actually considerably longer. Hmm. Yes, um, because it's actually quite yeah. short, but it's like in my memory because it has such an impact. It's like three times yeah. the length. And then he appears again later on in just a really quick uh, as part of a montage scene. Uh, montage. Yeah sorry, seen uh, sparring with someone and he seems happy enough and it's not poking any fun at him and I'm not sure what the purpose of him reappearing there is, but I was like, oh, there's Bruce and he seems happy, cool. Uh, no offence taken. Um, and also, I had, I don't know if he ever actually made such comments about Muhammad Ali, but if he did, well, he deserved to get his ass out of them by Brad Pitt because Muhammad Ali would have wasted him. Do you know, and the funniest thing about that scene is that as I was watching that scene of Brad Pitt handing Bruce Lee, or sorry, Cliff Booth handing Bruce Lee his ass. I'd forgotten that we were essentially viewing that in flashback and then as as the reason why Booth had been booted off the set and then it immediately cuts back <laughs> to Booth fixing, fixing the aerial on the roof and he just nods yeah. and goes, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, that was really funny. That was amazing. Um, I, Brad Pitt is the heart of this movie and I yeah. think this is maybe my favourite Brad Pitt role ever. I really could <laughs> yeah, just watch Cliff Booth knock about just being just like affable and genuine and his friendship with uh, his friendship with Dalton. There's something just really pure about it that I just don't think we've seen in a Tarantino film before. I really appreciated it. Uh, yeah, I, I think, I can't think of a time I've enjoyed Brad Pitt more. Yeah. Um, it's, I think perhaps one of the reasons I was so disappointed with him in Glorious Bastards um, on the second watch is because I knew how good he was in this um, mm. and how kind of nondescript he is in, in Glorious Bastards. I'll answer that as more the script than his yeah. performance. I don't think he's given a huge amount to work I with. think in I think in Bastards he's Brad Pitt and in this film he's Cliff Booth. I think that's yeah, the problem maybe, there. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's great. If there's any problems after this film, maybe it's casting because this film reminded me that Emil Hirsch is a thing and I still don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, it's... I don't know, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, is somebody who, in the last maybe 10 or 15 years, I've come to like a lot. I think he's somebody who can... He aged into his looks and his talent. He he just never looked right for a long time. Mm -hmm. 
and then I've come to peace with my land. I love him in The Wolf of Wall Street, and he's also great in this. And then he's actually got some of the best scenes in the film, like when he's doing that western with the little girl who's just completely like the world's oldest eight year old. He just gets some great scenes as well. So it's just such an entertaining film. And again, the more I think about it, the more frustrated I get about the one bit of it that I really don't like because I don't know why it's in there. And it's so unnecessary because mm-hmm. the the rest of it is so entertaining and I mean it's 60s Hollywood is such an appealing looking place all those mm. advertising hoardings and the neon signs and stuff and, and the that like the Californian light yep. um, See, and that time and place and the cars it, it, it's such an appealing place it looks so good and the films that have been made for all those reasons so that I find this is best looking film I know what you're saying about Hateful Eight but I, I could sit and watch this I could turn the sound off and watch this for, for nearly three hours again no problem yeah I, I wouldn't I, I mean I would I'd entertain the argument certainly mm. um but they're not directly covered because they, they look so different and it's one's more about framing and the other's more about light for me. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. necessarily... Um, yeah, it's apples and oranges. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just it's so appealing. And like, and you've got actors, like, once again, it's, you occasionally he'll like resurrect an actor's career that's been seemingly moribund for ages. Like, oh, like... Al Pacino acting again for the first time in like a hundred years or something, you know. Mm. It's like, and it's a kind of daft role, but I could have stood another ten minutes of that quite comfortably. Yep. Just don't call them Schwartz. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, it's weird. It's like you could just cut out the or like half the Manson. Maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe you leave the Manson family in as much as like Brad Pitt goes to the the ranch that day, sees Bruce there, and, and that's their mention of the Manson family. And you know that that's the era that it's happening in. And leave it at that, and that would have worked. Mm. But the, the fact that they're the climax of the film, oh, no, it's kind of, I, I do not like that. It's, um, mm. it's not enough to tarnish the rest of the film. I enjoy it so mm. much. It's just, it's just this big why hanging mm. over the whole thing, and it's very frustrating. It's not ghoulish, but it's ghoulish adjacent. I was going to say I don't have a problem with that at all but that's a fair enough comment Scott actually it's ghoulish adjacent (laughs) I think that's quite a nice summation (laughs) so I I guess we're finished talking about Quentin Tarantino for now until his potentially 10th potentially final film which he wants to do before his 60th birthday so that's soon (laughs) Maybe he'll change his mind. Mm. But, uh, I suspect he likes the idea of 10 as a round number. Um, <laughs> but that that's all he's made for now as a director. And it's, I guess we're quite overwhelmingly in favour of the most of his films. Yeah. So that's nice. Yeah. Uh, a good half. A good half. Honestly, I still, there's only two that I would say, no, avoid. Well, three if you count. Kill Bill as being two films, but the rest of them, I would still say they're worth looking at, and a lot of them I like an awful lot, so yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm realising that I'm thinking enough. that Kill Bill is two separate, actually, so yeah, yeah, overwhelmingly, you're right. I think there are potentially enough visually interesting things in Kill Bill that at a stretch, worth watching once, maybe at double speed. <laughs> I mean, um, but yeah, absolutely avoid Death Proof, it's appalling. Again, when you watch nine of the directors, well, ten, uh, yeah, I'm going back to that <laughs> point, uh, ten of the director's films in a short time, you really realise there's no substance to anything and 
So what I would advise is not watching 10 of them in one week because <laughs> it's, it's out, massively yeah. unsatisfying <laughs> in the end. Uh, but yeah, it's like, because you don't want an entire week's worth of meals to be dessert. You need your steak or your main meal every now and then. But you have your dessert film of Quentin Tarantino every now and then. Perfect. But otherwise... You're really doubling I, down on this dessert thing, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Sell that metaphor, Drew. I, I'm more thinking about the steak thing. I'm hungry. I didn't, I've only had breakfast today. I've just realised now after drinking... That, make, that makes you a fool, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Congratulations on that. I've been eating beer today. <laughs> Beer's a food group. It is, yes. Balanced uh, diet, breakfast and beer. But yeah, that's us on Tarantino though, I guess. If you want to get in contact with us, you can do through means of the internet, in particular by email, the podcast at fudsonfilm.com or uh, through Twitter at fudsonfilm. And I think all that's left to say now is goodbye. So, you know, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.